This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 91. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lum Ramayasha, and today we've got an awesome interview with David Rudders, editor at this media, in charge of series such as JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, We Never Learn, Hell's Paradise, Jigoku Raku, and so much more. But David's time in comics extends far beyond his time at Viz. He's been in the industry for over 16 years, and we talk about his early days in comics from his journalism days, writing at his blog Fork Letter, and then for sites like Comics Alliance, then his transition into becoming a content and brand manager at Image, and what the grind was like working at cons, and some of his duties there, and some of his freelance editorial work he did for a lot of books during that time as well. And beyond that, we just talked to David about his opinions on comics, and like what he looks for in comics, like how he approaches comics criticism and analysis. Uh, We talk about representation and diversity in comics, we talk about the future of digital comics, we had an incredible and extensive interview with David, and I'm so excited for you guys to listen. Yeah, it was it was a really, really fun discussion. Even if I don't talk during the interview, like, a whole lot, I still had a lot of fun kind of listening to the discussion, at least. But I don't think we have anything we have to talk about at the top of the show. So um, I think we should just get right into it. That we should. We've had several guests on the show before who've worked in the manga industry, but few have been in both worlds of the American comics publishing industry and the manga industry, like David Brothers. His experience extends as a freelance writer and blogger for many sites like Comics Alliance, to becoming the brand manager and content manager for Image Comics, and now he is the editor of several series like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, We Never Learned, and Hell's Paradise to Karaku for Wis Media. David, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. This will be a fun chat, I think. Mm-hmm. I really am impressed by like just the sheer amount of writing and the sheer amount of experiences you've had over the course of your career. As I was like researching and digging back into your blog, your letter, your post on Comics Alliance, you have written just such a lot. And you've yeah. just done so much. Yeah, fourth letter ran for about, uh, I think we stopped just short of our 10-year mark, like wow. by a couple of months or something like that. Wow. And what was the genesis of fourth letter? Like, where did the name come from? And then what prompted you to start writing the blog? Yeah, so the name, uh, the fourth letter is D, which is the first letter of David. <laughs> and I got the name because one of my uh, favorite rappers when I was a kid is uh, this guy named Rakim. And he released an album that's not his best, but I, I, it came out at the point when I liked it a lot, called The 18th Letter, which is R. Nice. Um, and that kind of stuck in my head as like a cool way to refer to yourself almost. I didn't think of it as branding at the time, but it totally became a branding thing because uh, everything else I've done online and like creatively has been like some variation on my name. Like my Twitter name is Hermanos, which is 
uh, brothers in Spanish, for instance. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I put out, like I do, I do eBooks occasionally, like criticism, fiction, that kind of thing. I just call it brothers books because the alliteration is nice. Yeah. Those are really clever ways to play off of your name and kind of create new and fun, interesting titles for your different projects. Yeah, absolutely. And I like having my name on my stuff, like my, my actual name, my government name, uh, so to speak. It just mm-hmm. feels like I own it more than I would under a pseudonym, which I don't think I've used a pseudonym since I was in high school. Hmm. But the the blog came from, essentially, I there was a website, I think it was Comics Bulletin. It might have been Silver Bullet Comics at the time before they rebranded. They put out an open call for writers, like, hey, review this, review some comics, send us your samples, and we'll hire you. And I wrote a review of uh, Justice League of America Classified, I think it was called. The very first arc, it was Grant Morrison, Ed McGinnis, uh, Dexter Vines inked it. I don't remember who colored it, but it was like my first comics review. And I sent it in, and I didn't get hired, and I basically went and built my own comic site <laughs> uh, with my friend Gavin Jasper, who I knew from day- when we, we used to do fan fiction together way, way back in the day. We both have a shared interest in comics, and we both enjoy writing, so we were like, hey, let's just have this playground and do it like let's just do the thing without waiting for someone to let us do the thing that's awesome you created your own platform your own space to get your thoughts out there yeah and it ended up paying off dividends i feel like it's really where i learned to write kind of doing it in public mm-hmm. yeah but what were your, some of your early fanfics like i'm very interested oh man i <laughs> the oldest one i can remember is from middle school uh i was born in 83 so this would have been like 97, 98. It was whenever Evangelion was first coming out over here. Mm. And I definitely had a fanfic where there was like a very thinly veiled version of me as like the third or fourth <laughs> child. Oh, uh, no. Uh, yeah. Hopefully things did not go badly for you like they did for <laughs> everyone in Ava. I think I didn't write enough to get to the bad stuff happening to me. Like I wasn't <laughs> that disciplined yet. But then in uh, in high school, I found this thing. There's a round-robin improvisational fanfic where essentially uh, Sid, if you wrote a chapter, and then Colton, mm-hmm. you would follow his chapter and try to solve his cliffhanger, huh. and you would leave a cliffhanger for me to f- follow up on. And we would just keep passing it around and around and around. I've looked back, and they're terrible now. <laughs> uh, but I really like loved the experience because mm. it was collaboration and also, like, it's sort of like a pressure cooker. Mm-hmm. Because some writers will give you cliffhangers that are like, oh, and here's like a cool scene you could start your uh, fanfic with. Others will give you one that's like, here's a cool scene that you will never be able to fix. So good <laughs> luck, buddy. Have fun. That actually sounds pretty interesting. I've never heard of that kind of style of writing before. Yeah, it came from, um, or I assume it came from this thing called uh, an exquisite corpse, like the art term where one person starts a drawing and then another person picks it up. And by the end of it, you know, after, you know, dozens of artists have touched it, you have this incredibly weird, incredibly amazing drawing. And it's sort of the prose version of that. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know if it's that popular anymore. Like, I feel like it's a very, like, 1999 to 2004 thing. <laughs> but it was very, it was very fun. It was uh, kind of formative for me. And it's where yeah. I met Gavin, who, you know, I've been friends with 18, hmm? 17 years now. It's been a very long time. It's been like 2000, 2001. Awesome. And do you still collaborate on projects together? Uh, no, not since the blog closed. Uh, once I got hired at Image, I realized that the blog was just kind of coasting. Like I wasn't, mm. I couldn't bring my full energy to it for whatever reason. So we shut the blog down. Mm. Um, but he shifted over to, uh, denofgeek.com where he's been doing tons of stuff over there for years now. 
so it kind of gave us both, you know, like you need clips to get hired at some place. Uh, it turns out doing a comics blog for 10 years is a good way to prove that you can write on a deadline. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you did hundreds of pieces for the blog. Yeah. Like, so you have an extensive backlogs, extensive samples to show to people. Yeah, sometimes I want to go back and see how many thousands of words that is. But that's <laughs> <laughs> that way lies, lies madness, I think. Mm-hmm. But you continue to keep up your blogging in your personal site, IamDavidBrothers.com. Yeah. I, I, I'm the kind of person that really needs some kind of personal creative outlet. Like I always have like little projects going, like I do podcasts under brothers before others, mm-hmm. uh, which you can find on iTunes and Stitcher and a bunch of other sites. Mm-hmm. And they're always like finite projects. Like, Oh, we're going to talk about music for six weeks or we're going to talk about just things like that. Like living in America in 2016. Like what is that like? And I, you know, found eight or nine friends to talk to me about it. The way we move podcast. Yeah. The way we move. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Because I have this idea that, like, we pay a lot of attention to celebrities and uh, people more famous than us, for lack of a better mm-hmm. phrase, like creators, movie stars, comics people, that kind of thing. But I think every person has really interesting stories on their own. Mm-hmm. Like, no one's boring. Like, we've all lived through a bunch of different things. And it's just a matter of finding that thing and getting, like, cracking someone open and getting them to talk about it. So pretty much all of my podcasting has been with friends and just trying to kind of get at like the cool things that we all see every day, see or hear or read or whatever. Hmm. Yeah, most definitely. I think that if you just talk to someone and ask them like about their stories, about like their experiences, you'll learn a lot of things about them. And like everyone has like a different journey in their life that has had like their own really interesting, unique experiences that only they have had. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I, I love talking to people about how they have lived their life and also, like, just how they might have done similar things, but the way they ended up doing those things are different. Like, everyone goes to school, but, like, the way that we go through school, like, the classes we take, the, you know, how things pan out for us, like, the struggles we have as we are learning things, everyone has a different story. Yeah, and I find that really fascinating because... Like, for instance, comic books, like anime, manga, like these kind of uh, visual arts, for lack of a better word. As a kid, I didn't get like the, oh, you read comics? That's not cool. Like, everyone read comics when I was in school. You know, we'd mm-hmm. have contests to see who could draw the best Ninja Turtles and that kind of thing. That's awesome. Yeah. And this is, you know, small town Georgia. It's not like I was, you know, in some super enlightened cosmopolitan place. We were just like, this is cool. Like, we like it. Like, why would we make fun of each other for it? Well, I think that's a great place to kind of dive into. What was your comic book origin story? How did you fall in love with this medium? Um, So I joked that my uncle uh, discovered girls in high school and passed all his comics down to me. Because <laughs> uh, I basically just got a box of comics one day. I don't remember why or how, but like the ages work out. Like I was in like young elementary school. Uh, he was, I think, a junior in high school. Um, and my first comic ever was Amazing Spider-Man 316, which was the second Venom story arc, like art by Todd McFarlane, words by David uh, Michelini. And there were pages from that book that I, like, I once saw a Venom shirt from, like, across a con hall and was like, oh, I know exactly what comic that this shirt got the, its art from. And the art was the main draw for me at first. Like, the stories were cool. I thought it was really interesting that Peter Parker was, like, grown up and had to worry about rent and his wife was looking mm-hmm. for work and she wasn't finding work. That stuff is very aspirational to a child in a weird way because it's unfathomable, you know? Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> like you don't have bills at eight years old. You don't really understand like rent has to be paid every month on the first of the month, but they did a really good job of communicating that in the books. But the art was the thing where I was like, this looks like nothing else in the world. Hmm. And, you know, I, I'm like, fundamentally, I'm a Spider-Man guy, um, especially Todd McFarlane and an X-Men guy, especially like Jim Lee, like that, uh, X-Men relaunch, X-Men number one. Like, I'm pretty sure I still have my original copy with like the five panel gatefold, Whoa. like in a box somewhere. And a friend of mine, Cena Grace, actually, uh, he was writing Iceman for Marvel up until recently. He put up a sketch from one of the issues that he did. And I, re- I knew like in- instantly that <laughs> the sketch was an homage to a certain panel in X-Men number one where Iceman says all cripes, which is <laughs> actually where I learned the word cripes. So that kind of thing, like the visuals really stuck in my head. And, um, you know, I drew as a kid. I, I stopped drawing as I got older. Uh, in high school, I switched to, uh, to writing because I was too dumb to realize that you could do both. Hmm. Uh, I was just wondering, you were drawing when you were in high school. Did you ever have like aspirations of being a comic writer or like an artist? Uh, weirdly not. I, I was going to go to art school, but it was more of like, I really liked working in charcoals and landscapes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was never really into doing narrative art on my own, sequential art, rather. It was more just like capturing an image. But also, mm-hmm. there weren't a lot of pathways to become a comics artist. Mm-hmm. Like my uncle, who actually gave me the comics in the first place, he's an artist as well. He he drew a few uh, books for himself when I was a kid. I used to, you know, look at the original art, and they just looked amazing. It was had a really, really cool, like, Willis Portacio vibe. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also partly why I got so interested in the art was that was like the easiest way to access comic books. But I actually, I quit reading comics in the mid nineties around when Onslaught and the Clone Saga happened at the same time. Oh, that was probably not a very good time to be into superhero comics in particular. (laughs) And even at like 13 or 14, I was like, wow, these are not good. And 13 and 14 year olds (laughs) do not have taste. Like that's not a thing I had back then. (laughs) But then I came back around, uh, like 98 or 99. I found Super Manga Blast from, uh, Dark Horse Comics back in the day. Mm-hmm. Which had like What's Michael and Three by Three Eyes, uh Oh My Goddess was in there, I believe. And that was kind of my second entry to manga because I'd found the manga for Akira that Marvel published before mm-hmm. then. I had like two or three volumes of that. Awesome. Yeah, it was a it's been a long journey, but I've had I found some really, really cool stuff that's just stuck in my brain. So Akira was your introduction to manga. Did you discover it through the anime film first? Uh, actually, I found it by accident. I think there was some ad in a Marvel comic where they were like, you know, like, Akira number 18, like, blah, blah, blah happens. And I was like, oh, mm. wait a minute. I've seen that movie. I love that movie. How do I get this? <laughs> like, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, because my first anime, actually, was, it was either Akira, Vampire Hunter D, or Fist of the North Star, which I think really dates me, but there's still some uh, really classic films. But those are pretty intense, violent films. Oh yeah, I was actually sent out of the uh, out of the room during the ending for Akira the first time I watched it because my cousin went and told my grandmother I was watching a blood and guts movie. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, a couple weeks later, I finally saw the ending when we rented it again. Now well, that's good that you didn't have to wait years upon years to finally see the ending. <laughs> yeah. But Akira, what drew you to that comic when you first, like, found the issues of it? Like, what about Otomu's art and storytelling, like, really captivated you? And did you know back then that this was a comic from Japan? Did you have that sensibility that this is different from the other comics you've been reading at the time? Yeah, I kind of knew 
in theory. Like, I didn't really know what Japanese comics meant necessarily. I just knew that that was a place that also made comic books. Because I'm from an Air Force family, and my grandparents were stationed in Japan, uh, I think, two or three years before I was born. So, like, my aunt and uncle were, like, 14 and 15 in Japan. So they kind of, uh, they brought a bunch of stuff back. Like, we always had, like, ramen noodles around the house and that kind of thing. Like, just, they just got a taste for certain aspects of the culture. But I didn't really get what that meant because I was too young. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I found the comic, I was, I was like, oh, I like the movie. This book is really different, though. And like that, the differences between the movie or between the animation and the com the book, uh, kind of really caught my caught my eye because uh, there's a character named Chiyoko in the comic yeah. who's great. She's just this big buff lady who's always beating people up. <laughs> very different character in the film. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, very less significant role. <laughs> <laughs> and she's all over the book. And there's mm-hmm. something about that about the the idea that you could tell the same story two different ways that really got me. And the older I got, the more I would revisit it. Like I've got a couple of the, uh, the hardcovers that graffiti designs, put out the colorized, uh, Akira that from ages ago that I found in the comic shop randomly in Virginia. Ooh. And I've just been pouring over them for 20 years. Like I'm pretty much always in a state of rereading this book because I love it so much. Are those versions colorized by Otomo or? They were colorized by Steve Olaf under Otomo's supervision. Mm. So it's kind of a cool thing where I guess Marvel or Epic Comics, uh, Marvel subsidiary, I don't know if they didn't have faith or they just wanted to make it color for the uh, American audience. So my understanding is that Otomo flew to the States and like pretty much sat down with Olaf, you know, over a week or a weekend or something like that. And they did a bunch of coloring together. So Otomo was like, this is cool, but I kind of want this to be more like that. And Olaf was like, okay, but what if we did this? And like there was, I think, some digital coloring involved that helped like blaze trails for companies like Malibu. Uh, mm. They kind of specialized in that sort of thing and Wildstorm FX. Hmm. So the result is this book that looks so different from the black and white, but still appropriate for the story. Like there's almost two versions of Akira to me, the black and white version that Dark Horse and later Kodachi reprinted, and then like the colorized version. Hmm. And I prefer the color because I found it first, but they both have their different benefits. Hmm. And I actually own... I think two or three of the color guides that Olaf sent to Marvel to, to uh, show how pages should be printed and colored, which I just lucked out at uh, the alternative press expo one year and saw him at his table and he had a bunch, he had a stack of pages and I had like 50 bucks in my bank account and spent $45 <laughs> on comics pages. <laughs> Whoa. But those are incredible finds. Like, yeah, they're beautiful. I'm, I think it's awesome that they collaborated with Atomo to make sure that the color sensibilities were right. And, do you feel that the color palette, it is distinct from that of the film? Yeah, definitely. It's more, I think the film has, softer is not the right word. The colors pop more in the film. The comic feels a little dingier, but dingy mm. used is almost like a compliment, you know? Yeah, to get the sense of this post-apocalyptic world of Neo-Tokyo and kind of the lifestyle that the characters are living. Like the colors yeah, have exactly. to be dirtier. Gritty is another good word. For, lived in. That's that's yeah. how it feels. Like there's wear and tear. Yeah. Like even the characters is clothes, they show signs of like being maybe uh, torn up, nipped a bit, like just yeah. from the color. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, I love that. It's so cool looking. And I love that, that I have this this object in my life that I love as an animation, as <laughs> a color comic, a black and white comic, and then also just in theory, like it's nice to think about like what does the story mean? And my understanding of it evolves over time as well. You know, as I get older and I have different experiences, 
new context to put things in and things like that. Mm-hmm. Would you say that Akira is one of your most formative series in terms of understanding the visual language of comics? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like, cause on your blog and fourth letter and even places you've done for uh, other sites and blogs of yours, like, you've written about Akira extensively and like really focused on like small moments, like just small details in Otomo's art and how that tells the story. Like one of my favorite pieces that you did on Akira on fourth letter was one where you really looked at the characters' outfits. And mm. the clothing and what that said about them. And like just uh, Otomo's fashion sensibilities and like the thought process he put into costuming the characters the way he did to make sure their personalities and also there's so much information that's communicated by what they're wearing when they're wearing. Like the kernel, like the militaristic aspects he wears at the beginning and then post the big apocalyptic event like he's wearing these more frumpled clothes but still pretty baggy you know things where he can like hide things in it really shows a top process about behind like how the character what why the characters wear the clothes they do and then also the small moments where you know you really looked at and how otomo shows characters like putting on clothes or just interacting in their environment it to me it seems like you're really fascinated with akira and just like how Otomo, in every frame of that comic, is conveying something with his art. Like, even without dialogue, there's just so much to that world and so much to these characters that is just said through art. Yeah, and it's all, like, my interest in pretty much everything is storytelling. Like, what are you mm-hmm. saying to me? Uh, whether in general or personally or specifically. And, like, the clothes thing, clothing is a language. Like, fashion is definitely a language. You wear certain clothes yeah. to get a certain... Uh, reaction or to present a certain face to the world. You know, like when I go outside to take the trash out, you know, I don't put on like a bow tie and nice slacks, you know, because it doesn't matter. But if mm-hmm. I have like a job interview or like a date or something that I would dress a little bit differently and to see that reflected in a comic book or a manga, it's just super cool. It's even like the, the shoes that you wear every day. Like, are you wearing them because they're comfortable? Or are you wearing them because like you work, uh, construction and you need like your toes protected? Are you wearing them because you're an athlete and you have to go running? What are the colors of the things that you're wearing? What do those mean to you? What are you saying to people? And mm-hmm. I think that a lot of times in comics and sequential art, people like shirts are just shirts and pants are just pants. But when you get an artist that will be like, no, like this person buttons his polo up all the way to the top button. This guy doesn't button his polo at all. And there's a reason for that. Like you can feel that in the story. Definitely. I think that you really need to ask the question of why, like, what is this character's interiority? Like, how do they live their lives just on a daily basis? Like, without what we see in the story, even, like, think about, like, how they live their daily lives, the choices that they would make, you know, just in a normal day. Like, how Mm -hmm. would they get up in the morning, you know, their daily routine? I feel like the best writers think about what their characters do normally outside the story, like, how they just generally are, and, like, what choices they would make just in normal situations like everyday situations and that stuff it seems so minor but if you think about it like it's the building blocks for everything else you know like Mm -hmm. if someone has a if you have a character who's like good at fighting like what does that mean for their home life yeah and it's kind of fun uh to see that extrapolated like in a series like uh, Dragon Ball, like Goku yeah, is so focused, <laughs> focused on fighting and uh, thinking very competitively and like just strength focused. So whenever we get a scene of domestic life for Goku, like just him 
at home with Chi Chi and Gohan. And this is, I think, even more so, more an anime thing where we really see into their daily lives like that. I always find that fascinating to see just how does Goku live his life just normally when he's not fighting? Like, yeah. how does he interact with his wife and kid? And then, like, what does he do just on a daily basis when there isn't a world to save, when he just has to, you know, find something else to entertain himself in the day. Or in Super when he has to learn how to use a smartphone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think one thing that we lost with the, um, like the English version of Dragon Ball, whether animated or uh, drawn, is that Goku's from the country. Yeah. Like, he yeah. grew up on a mountain. He doesn't, like, he's a hick. And that really changes how he acts. Like, he's very innocent. He's very, like, pure of purpose in a way that he might not be if, you know, he were a city folk or something like that. Yeah. I mean, this is also a huge characterization thing with Chi-Chi, too, is that she is also, like, kind of a country person like Goku in her personality. And that's conveyed in the Japanese, but, like, when you, especially in the English dub of the anime, like, you don't get that sense that Chi-Chi is actually not that educated or knows, like, really the right educational path. She's just, like, thinking... Well, the right path uh, for a kid is to study and get a good job. So that's what kind of mother I'm going to be. And yeah. so there's there's a sense of naivety there that you don't really get in the dub, which I find very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really fun. One of my favorite scenes with them in uh, the Dragon Ball Z manga, there's a scene where Chi-Chi and Bulma are watching, uh, I think Goten and Trunks are in the World Martial Arts Tournament. Yeah. And they're sitting next to the mother of another competitor who's just talking all <laughs> kinds of trash. And that's the point when you remember, like, oh, wait, no, Chi-Chi's a great fighter because she knocks this lady out just, <laughs> like, out of pure pettiness while she's cheering on her kids. But there's just so much there where I'm like, this is, like, really interesting. Like, she is such a good character to think about. Like, her dad is the Ox King. Mm-hmm. Like, what is that about? You know? Yeah. And I, I really love it when writers, like, think about, like, you know, let's put this character in a situation like, how would they react? What is right for them to react? So I think, like, the best stories are told when it feels appropriate for the characters to kind of be in the situations they are and, like, make decisions based on, like, their experiences and, like, how they just would naturally respond to those situations. Yeah, that's really the fun of storytelling. Like, there's just something about comics especially where I'm just like, let me see you tell your story and then I'm going to try to I don't mean pick it apart in a negative way, but I'm trying to pick it apart in my head so that I can understand it even better. Mm-hmm. Like the yeah. clothes stuff in Akira. Um, there's like a little bit early in the series where the school nurse confesses that she might be pregnant with, K- with Kaneda's baby. And he's mm-hmm. very, he's extremely flippant about it to, to be uh, <laughs> very kind. And that says a lot about his character. And it's like a three page scene. Like it's nothing compared to the rest of 2000 pages of Akira. But it has a point in the narrative. That's why Tomo put it there, because it reveals something about his character. Yeah, it's very intentional. Like, making comics is extremely hard. You know, I mean, it's not <laughs> harder than digging ditches or something like that, but it's hard in its own way. Mm-hmm. So I don't think anyone does anything in comics by accident or kind of carelessly, at least not like the really good, like, talented creators and people we keep coming back to. Like, every line they put down is put there for a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard depending on how much you want to, like, think about what you're writing and drawing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there has to be so much... Because everything in a comic 
is drawn, you know, everything that is put in a scene is there for a purpose. And when you think of like a really cluttered scene, you know, if there's like so many things in this one panel, like a scene of just someone's bedroom and you're seeing everything in their bedroom, you're seeing maybe some messy clothes on the floor or some posters on the wall, like all that stuff is there for a reason because it's telling you something about the character. Mm-hmm. And so those are panels that oftentimes, like, when we're reading, you, we might just, like, look at it at a glance for a couple of seconds and then move on. But, like, even if we just have a split second, you know, understanding uh, of that visual information, that's valuable visual information that we kind of ha- keep in mind as we go in the story. Because it sets, like, a mood. It sets up, like, an idea of how this character is. And we kind of uh, understand that going forward as we're, like, reading the the rest of the comic like there's just so much important into like the details of the world that like you know it's really important to kind of think about and understand because the artists and the writers they put so much thought into what they put in a panel and like how they communicate this information mm-hmm. yeah i agree a hundred percent and that's what i really love about your writing is that you really look at every element that is in the comment, like the paneling, the art, every bit of it, like every bit that makes a comic a comic and really get to the heart of like how the story is being told in this medium. And like you've, you know, you've called out before like the, the stereotypical comic review formula of like a couple paragraphs on the writing and then one on the art but what i (laughs) and what i love about all of your writing is that you don't make that separation is that you really uh look at every aspect it's all uh entwined because the art is the story when it comes to comics yeah, that uh, that stance didn't make me a lot of friends but i really (laughs) think that like like you said art is writing when it comes to comics like it, it really counts. And I think that if you're going to approach comics as something to be discussed, like the art and the artist, actually uh, artists have to be involved. They have to be in the conversation because they're the ones making the decisions. Mm-hmm. And it's tough. Like I totally get why people don't because, um, you know, like I dropped out of college, but I was an English major before I did. So like writing is very easy for me to talk about. Like I already speak that language. Uh, and I was just fortunate I had just enough of a background in art as a kid to kind of, kind of be able to teach myself the language of art without actually being an artist or find a way to discuss art without being an artist is a better way to phrase that. Mm-hmm. And it's all about like, look, how does this make you feel? Like fundamentally, like that's what I want to know. I don't really care about is this good? Is this bad? It's like you have this book in front of you. You read it. How did it make you feel? Like, what did you like about it? What did you dislike? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really good approach to understanding comics and like critiquing comics is to like just focus on the feelings rather than trying to make objective statements of good or bad because ultimately i think the best call is how the art is telling the story and like what is your understanding of the story as Mm -hmm. told through the art so if there is something that feels off in a comic and it might be because of the art, then mm-hmm. that's something to kind of look at. It's like, why am I getting something different from the artist's intention here? It's like, what is happening in these panels, happening in this frame that is not telling me the information that I need to enjoy the story? 
Yeah, and some of the greatest comics uh, that were made by a duo as opposed to a cartoonist have been ones where the writer and the artist were like, look, we need to knock this out of the park. Like, how are we going to do this? Um, mm-hmm. There's an old story about Electra Assassin, uh, a great graphic novel, I think it was from 1986, by Frank Miller and Bill Sienkiewicz. And the story is, apparently, Miller wrote the first script to the first issue. Um, Sienkiewicz drew most of it, threw half of it out, and then sent it back to Miller so he could do the dialogue. And then they just kept doing that for the entire series. So it became this weird uh, amalgamation of the two. Mm-hmm. But it's you can't tell when you read it because it almost reads like one person did it. You know, like everything is perfectly in sync. Hmm. And to me, that's insane that like two people can come together to make like a one cohesive vision like that. Because yeah. that just takes so much talent and so much communication. So much trust. <laughs> yeah, I mean, comics really is communication, the communication of ideas. And then it's like, it's, it's also trust, trusting the audience to like really understand and grasp what you're telling them. Yeah. Like what you're trying to say. Yeah, for sure. I like comics that make you work for it a little bit. Like, don't just tell me what your message is. Like, let me figure mm-hmm. it out. Like, point me in the right direction, but let me finish the dishes to mix two completely different metaphors. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. But yeah, I mean, it's clear that you have just such a clear passion for comics, but it also interests, interests me that you didn't start in comics journalism, you actually started in games journalism. So yeah. I was wondering, why did you get into games journalism early on? And then later on, what inspired you to make the switch to comics? Uh, the games thing is part of my long, weird path towards where I am today. I was fresh out of high school, uh, going to college back home. And a friend of mine who was actually doing the roundtable fan fiction with a guy named, by the name of Thomas Wilde, uh, he said, Hey, you can write. Do you want to write some game reviews for this website that I'm working for now? And I think it was called Game Partisan. And it was one of those things where like someone's son was rich and just had like a vanity project, hmm. but he was paying. So like my first games, like I've been like a professional writer since like 2003 or something like that. So I basically just did it at first because someone asked me and I was like, sure, why not? I like money and I like video games and I get free video games for writing about video games. This is great. <laughs> uh, and that eventually led to me working for Hardcore Gamer, which was created by a couple of old uh, game fan staff members from way back in the 90s. It was a really well-respected magazine from back then. And that led to me getting a staff job at a creative services company in San Francisco. Uh, we worked with video game companies like... Uh, Sony, Nintendo, uh, Electronic Arts. Like I did the manuals for a bunch of video games, like pretty much all the Madden, John Madden footballs between 2007 and 2012, maybe something like that. Wow. Uh, we did strategy guides. We did like I did video editing. I learned Final Cut on the job because we had, you know, a deadline we had to hit to make B-roll for a Silent Hill. Uh, I think it was Silent Hill Homecoming. We had to make B-roll footage for that. How fast was the turnaround for that? For the Silent Hill project, it was like 24 hours. Like I was sitting Whoa. at a computer that had Final Cut on the big screen and I had a little laptop with YouTube tutorials of Final Cut. And I was just going back and forth. Was that an all-nighter? It wasn't an all-nighter. It was maybe we just needed a few hours of footage. And once I kind of figured out the process, it got a lot easier, you know? I see. But it was a late night. It was I was probably didn't get home until 10 or 11 or something like that. But like that's a skill that like paid off huge for me down the line because now... You know, if I need to edit the video, I know either what to do or how to Google what I need to do. Yeah, definitely. 
Oh yeah. So after off base, um, off base productions was what the creative services company was called. Uh, while I was there, I kind of stopped games reviewing and started doing comics reviewing. Mm-hmm. And that was another thing where I made friends through the fourth letter blog, which I started up in 2005 or six, something like that. And, um, again, like Laura Hudson was like, Hey, do you want to come write for me at comics Alliance? Cause I'd met her on a panel at San Diego comic-con that, uh, Douglas Volk put together. And I was like, sure, that'll be fun. And then I was like, Oh wait, I hate writing about comics news. Can I just write about the art? And she was like, sure, let's do it. Like, let's, let's make this a real thing. And it just kind of took off from there. Awesome. So what were your first pieces for comics Alliance? And were they like leaning to, or like, interested in letting you write about manga early on too or like what kind of did they impose any restrictions or did they just let you go freeform she just let me go freeform um early on there were assignments like hey cover this news we got this movie in would you like to review it that kind of thing but as time went on she just gave me increasingly more space to kind of do my thing Mm -hmm. i don't remember my first pieces actually that's a really good question like, I know I did a movie review of Redline, but that would have come out in 2009 or something like that, I think. 2010, maybe. But it was just, you know, the usual Newswire thing, like, hey, here's some news from uh, San Diego Comic-Con or something. Or uh, here's a big roundtable discussion of the new Amazing Spider-Man status quo. And then once I kind of figured out my voice for Comics Alliance, then I could get weird and do things like writing about manga exclusively or digital comics or something like that. That's awesome. Why did you choose to talk about the topics that you did for Comics Alliance? Like, when you approach writing a piece, like, what usually inspired you to go, I want to write about this this week. This is what I want to spotlight. It's kind of pretty much everything, almost everything I've ever written has been because I wanted to understand it better for myself. Mm-hmm. More so than evangel, like the evangelizing for others is a, uh, like a benefit or a bonus of that. Like even with Akira, it's like, look, I love this book. Why do I love this book? Let me examine everything, you know, from the mm-hmm. clothes to the facial expressions. And it was the same for stuff like, uh, Frank Miller's Batman. I did a bunch of pieces on that kind of dissecting what he was doing with Batman and how that grew into my favorite take on Batman for all its, uh, pros and cons. The all-star Batman and Robin series? I loved it. Um, I, like, I'm the guy. <laughs> um, like, there's just something about it where I, I get what he was trying to do, but I think they made a huge mistake when they hired Jim Lee as the artist because he's mm. fantastic. He's one of my favorite uh, superhero artists. Like, I feel like Jack Kirby kind of defined the language of superheroes, and Jim Lee gave us the modern version of that in terms of design and how the comics look. But because he was on all-star Batman and Robin the Boy Wonder, People were like, oh, it's going to be a real straight up superhero comic. It's going to be Hush or, you know, one of these prestige formats. But it's not. It's Frank Miller doing Frank Miller. And that is not what a Jim Lee comic is. (laughs) And I think that if Miller or someone else had drawn it, so it was a little more cartoony, a little less realistic, a little further from like the DC house style, which is basically Jim Lee style split in various directions, it (laughs) would have been better received. But because it looks just like Hush, but it was about Batman and Robin painting an entire house yellow to like mess with Green Lantern. <laughs> <laughs> like people were deservedly upset. Like I, I have, I hold no illusions about it. But it was one of those books where I was like, oh, this one's for me. If it looked more similar to Dark Knight Returns, and then I'm yeah. sure people would be like, okay, I know what to expect. I'm expecting a different take 
uh, from the Batman that I know. Yeah, but I think people wanted like more year one, but instead they mm-hmm. got a Batman who just completed year one. He's 25 years old and he's a huge jerk, which makes sense from, you know, like a, a uh, storytelling point of view. Like he had to, I feel like the entire point of Batman and Robin is that Robin humanized Batman. Mm-hmm. Kind of pulled him away from vengeance a little bit. He's like, oh no, like I need to protect more than I need to attack. And all-star Batman and Robin the boy wonder, like Batman is horrible in that book. But Robin is always there to be like, you're not that cool and the voice you're putting on sucks. And like, <laughs> I guess your Batcave is cool, but I've seen better. So just like consistently humbling him over the course of the series until they're finally both like crying at his parents' grave. I'm like, oh, this is cool character development specifically for the Frank Miller Batman. I just wish that they had positioned it better, you know? Yeah, maybe chosen kind of an art style and, like, character designs that kind of reflected that this was a a Batman that was not as sane as we come to expect. (laughs) Like, the kind of exaggeration of the idea of, you know, what kind of person really adorns a bat costume and goes around uh, beating the crap out of criminals? You know, what what would that person logically, how would he end up psychologically? And how would an actual teenager react to that kind of person? And that series has one of my hands down most favorite Batman moments because it's so ridiculous where um, <laughs> Batman rescues a, a woman from uh, being mugged in an alley and he beats up the bad guys. He's like, that'll give this guy, you know, arthritis. He'll f- regret this night for years. And the lady's like, you know, like, thank you. I love you. And as he's leaving, he's like, no one loves anyone, my darling. We just survive. And I'm like, Batman, <laughs> you are terrible. But for some reason, I love this. Yeah. That. It really does sound like a, a treasure. Yeah. In terms of like- <laughs> it's one of those books you have to recommend with like a caveat. Like, I like this a lot. It's not for everybody, but maybe you'll get into it too. Yeah, I think if you know what you're getting into and like you have an appreciation for like uh, Frank Miller is twisting kind of these this idea of like Batman and like like what kind of person would this be in real life? Yeah. I think you can, if you go into the book, uh, from that perspective, there's a lot to love about it. Yeah, even just the fact that Batgirl is cussing up a storm in the issue that yeah. they gave her. <laughs> like, there's just something about it where I'm just endlessly entertained. Mm-hmm. You wrote up a lot of great pieces for Comics Alliance uh, and really dug into some really fun stuff like All-Star Batman Robin. Yeah, thank you. Then you made the jump from comics journalism to uh, working in the industry. Well, actually, even before you uh, took a position at Image, uh, you did some freelance editing for books. Uh, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, the editing actually came a little bit after uh, I started oh. at Image. Um, I basically, once I got there, a bunch of people I already knew from writing about comics were work, were had Image books coming up, like Greg Rucka, um, Ed Brubaker. Uh, and Scott Snyder after I think a year or so. So when I got hired, I basically emailed him and I was like, Hey, I'm here now. I don't a hundred percent know what my duties are, but like, if you guys need help editing, like let's talk. And, uh, Rucka and Lark on Lazarus brought me on, I think with issue two or three, I did a very, very small amount of work for Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, but that's a crew that doesn't really need an editor. Uh, they do criminal and it's so good. Obviously, I was just like, hey, like, guys, I'm not doing anything special for you. So I don't need the credit, you know? Well, I think it's always good to have like a second voice, a se- like someone to kind of look over your work and like make sure that you're on track, even if you think that what your work is doing is really good. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, I think that's why Snyder brought me on with Witches, because I'd written on Fourth Letter. Early in his career, he had a tick where he would, a lot of his characters mentioned lessons their father gave them. Mm -hmm. And I gathered a bunch of those and put them all in the same blog post. And I was like, this is good writing, but it's less good when it's so common. And he was like, you know what, dude? Fair play. I appreciate you pointing this out, and I'm going to do better in the future. And he really did. Awesome. And when it, the time came for him, when him and uh, Jock needed an editor on Witches, he was like, hey, do you want to like make this official and help us out on this book? Which is really flattering, honestly. It was really cool. That is really cool. Like To be a part of the creative process of making comics. Yeah. What did that feel like? Did it, like when the first time you took on an editorial role, like did that feel kind of like surreal to you to like go from being a fan to now being involved in the process? Oh, I was super nervous because I was working with creators who I already, you know, like Brubaker and Phillips mm -hmm. on Criminal, like it's one of my favorite books. Like Scott Snyder was he had American Vampire. That series is great with um Raphael Albuquerque. Uh Greg Rucka and Michael Lark do like low-key crime comics that I like. So I almost felt like, I don't know if I have anything to tell these guys. But then I realized that one major role for an editor, a creative editor in that kind of situation, is learning how to listen to the story they're telling and then asking the right questions about it. And then sometimes, like very rarely, would I be like, oh, like here's a line you should use, here's a thing you should do, or something like that, because that's not really what they needed. They just needed someone to bounce ideas off of, and their story in their head made more sense to them as they explained it to me. Mm -hmm. Like I had some, I have had uh, long phone calls with Greg Rucka where he just explains the story. And I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. <laughs> and then he explains a bit he's having trouble with. And after he finishes explaining, he's like, oh, wait, no, I have this now. Because saying it out loud makes it real. Like you kind of have to figure out what you're doing when you're talking about it. Yeah, it's one thing to think of the story in your head and like kind of mull it over inside. But when you get that actor, when you're like actually telling the story to someone else, that's when you're like really knowing what works, what doesn't. And then like, that's when you kind of have a better grasp of it. Like when I was in uh, school and I was taking screenwriting classes, you know, it was like during the presentation phase, like reading out the script, reading out like the log lines, the pitches, like that's when I was kind of realizing, okay, what is working? What is like connecting? And uh, uh, like, does this make sense as I'm reading it now that it's like off the page and I'm actually like reading this aloud and thinking about it and sharing this and like seeing people react to it? Yeah. And even with Lazarus, there was one bit I had like a very, very small uh, input on the story that like it still makes me laugh a little bit, which was there was an early issue. I forget. It's like somewhere between eight and 11 where the character forever, uh, Carlisle, kind of the main character of the series she's shot by someone from an enemy army kind of just as a lark because mm. she's well, no pun intended on lark, but because she's essentially immortal, like she regenerates, she doesn't die. And Greg was having a lot of trouble with it. Um, he was like, you know, like I want this to happen, but if it does happen, like that's an act of war. So like, how do we get around this? And I was like, what if she big dogs the other side? And it's like, look, you know who I am. You know who my father is. You need to find the man that shot me just now and put him to death or we're going to come back after you and that will be the end of everything. And Greg was quiet for a second and he was like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is that's an awesome moment to like pitch out. Yeah. And it was so much. I mean, and obviously, like Greg and Michael's uh, execution is what nailed it. But I was like, this feels right for the series. This feels right for the story you're telling. Like she's a good person, but she's still her father's daughter and her father is a monster. 
So she's used to getting her way on a certain level. Yeah, it all goes back to like thinking about the character and like how they live their lives and like their experiences and what they would do in the situation. Like that, <laughs> that really is smart. I, I love that. Yeah. And as an editor, I think it's important to set your creators up to succeed. Like mm-hmm. find the thing that they're good at and encourage them to lean into it. And if they want to challenge themselves, find a way for them to challenge themselves that benefits them and the audience at the same time. Like ask the hard questions ask like, so why is this character doing this this time instead of, you know, like someone else doing something else entirely? Mm-hmm. Like why does it need to be this character doing this action in the story? Yeah, like if a character exactly. feels interchangeable, if you can think of a way that the story could be written without this character involved or doing what they're doing, then, you know, it can't work. Or it just does not feel right. The story feels more artificial and feels more like you're moving uh, pieces on a board. You're just, like, moving these characters around two different places rather than them going there, them actually be taking an active part in this story. Yeah, for sure. And that kind of speaks to the intentionality we were talking about earlier. Like, stories are better when they're intentional. Mm-hmm. Kelly Sue DeConnick has this thing she calls the, I think it's the sexy lampshade test or something mm-hmm. like that, where if you could replace a woman in your story with like a sexy lamp and the story doesn't change at all, you need to start over from the beginning. Like you've completely messed up. Yeah. Like people need agency. People need interiority. Like things need to happen for a reason, not just because like you need a lady on the page for whatever reason. Like she has to be there for a specific reason. Yeah. And she needs to know why she's there too, the character. Yeah, exactly. I think this is something that I really thought about recently with uh, Avengers Endgame. Not to spoil mm-hmm. anything, but I just feel like, you know, the way that the movie Wizard and even the way it's set up, like getting half the characters out of the way at the end of Infinity War and then using the pieces you have left and the strategic, like, saving of Ant-Man and Hawkeye for Endgame and, like, their role in it. Like, when I, I feel like... That is really good writing in terms of like how you use your characters and then like position them in a way to get the most effective story out of it. And I think that's like one of the reasons why that film ended up being like pretty well done narratively for something that could have been such a mess with so many pieces involved, so many characters and storylines. Yeah. And I actually, I, um, I don't watch too many Marvel movies nowadays but i watched ant-man and ant-man and the wasp a couple weekends ago because some friends finally like made me do it (laughs) and i was impressed that one they were way better than i thought they were which that sounds like damning with faint praise they were good movies (laughs) i just didn't expect much because i'm a jerk Mm -hmm. and they had what you were talking about where it's like no like this is actually death storytelling like this they're doing cool things in this movie it's just about a loser and his team of heisting losers Hmm. yeah i think that the marvel cinematic universe does like what I think was really is really appealing about like uh the big two superhero comics and like their whole event structure, at least uh at the in terms of the best of those types of stories, is that like in these individual movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like they tell a standalone story that like has a cohesive strew line, but then they also have pieces in that story that they can extrapolate and then have positioned to be developed and to be used in other films and paid off in great ways, like in Ant-Man and the Wasp, 
there's this whole thing with the quantum realm that they do in that film mm-hmm. that like, you know, it's great in the context of that movie, but then that entire idea is crucial to Avengers Endgame. So like if you watch that movie and then you go to Endgame, you feel like, oh, I know another piece of the story. Mm-hmm. And, but even then, if you don't see Ant-Man and the Wasp and you see Avengers Endgame, the storytelling is still solid enough and you know enough of the characters and like what's going on that it's, you don't feel lost. And so I think when it comes to like these big, these big event comic storylines, I feel have to be so carefully written in that way to like, you know, the characters all need to be positioned in a way that, you know, it makes sense for their stories just personally. But then in the larger story, you know, the, there's just so much more you, the reader can get out of it by like reading every piece of the puzzle. But like mm-hmm. just one piece is still, uh, enjoyable enough on its own. So it's such a challenge. But to me, I think that's really fascinating about those kind of stories. Yeah, for sure. That house of cards where you're like, Oh, this could fall apart. It might fall apart. But if it doesn't, this is going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. But. In terms of your editorial role, that was like a, a part of some of the things you were doing at Image, but like your main roles were as, first as a content manager and then as a brand manager. So I was kind of wondering like what that entailed, like what were some of your job duties in those roles and what are the kind of, some of the kind of experiences and things you were doing in that time? Yeah. So content manager was my original role at image, which was, um, a role they created for me. And basically it's a fancy way to say proofreader. Hmm. Like I was the guy who read every image comic every week, uh, before I went to press and I was like copy editing essentially, or, you know, like pointing out like, Hey, this artist messed up. Do you have like a corrected file or something like that? So I was part of their production department, which, uh, gave me actually a real appreciation for production and, uh, in publishing because they worked so hard and had so many late nights. Um, and I did that for a while. There were some, uh, I would do panels occasionally as content manager. And then as the panels started taking off, like they realized like, oh, when David does a panel, people come to the booth at Comic-Con to buy the books. So we should make him do a lot more panels. <laughs> so that became one of my main <laughs> duties. Um, so they switched me over. It's actually branding manager, but everyone thinks it's brand manager because branding manager mm. is not a title in any other industry or any other company. I think it's almost like a typo of a title, but it was kind of similar where I was the guy, I think for, I think two or three years straight, I was one of the most public facing people at image next to Eric Stevenson, the publisher, because I would go to all the cons. I would do all the panels. Um, if there were Skype chats or video chats, like I was there basically being kind of a spokesman. Uh, at one point I requested my title to be MC before we (laughs) landed on branding manager, but, but they were like, no, it's not. It's too different from what everyone else has. So we're going to go with this instead. But as branding manager, I feel um, my job was representing the creators and their books in a way that would kind of maximize the return on their effort, like their time spent making the books. So when I would do panels, I would try to set them up in such a way that either the books were complementary to each other. So if someone liked one book but hadn't heard of the other, they'd want to get both. Or... um taking advantage of the fact that some creators in comics have bigger names than others. So Mm -hmm. there was, I put Robert Kirkman, you know, the writer of the walking dead, like, you know, one of the biggest names in comics on a stage with, um, Tom Neely and, uh, who worked on the humans for image, which is a comic about biker apes in post Vietnam 
doing drugs and having sex. <laughs> uh, completely different from The Walking Dead, like much more of an indie comic vibe. But it worked because, you know, Tom and Keenan, uh, ah, I forgot his last name. I feel so bad about that. But the creators of the humans are really charismatic dudes. So they got on stage, they did their punk rock thing, and the audience loved it. And I think that is an audience that was most, that was there because it's like, oh, Walking Dead's going to be here. Let's see if we can get some news. So I gave them the Walking Dead news, but then I gave them the humans as well. Because, you know, in any big subset, there'll, there'll be people in that set who like, you know, the smaller things as well. And they <laughs> sold out at the show. Like people came back to the booth like, yo, what is this wild monkey comic about? And where can I get it? Like, why is there so much nudity in this thing? And I felt really good about that because, like, I don't really have a comics hierarchy. Like, there's not any creator that I like, I like because they do good stuff, not because, like, they're a big name. Mm -hmm. So I tried to treat everyone who I brought onto my panels or um, onto the Image podcast. Like, I did, I think, 51 episodes of that or into uh, Image Plus magazine. I tried to treat them the same, put them on the same equal footing and just, like, push them out into the audience and be like, here, here's what makes your work cool. Here's what makes it good. Here's what people are going to latch on to. Let's dig into this and why and kind of tell people, you know, if you build it, they will come, but you have to tell them before they come. Otherwise, they'll never find out that you built it. That's awesome. I mean, you really had a great understanding of the artists, like the what made their stories good and like the best way for them to express that to newcomers, to people who aren't familiar, like that Walk that panel you're talking about with the Walking Dead creator. I think that's a really smart idea to like you get an existing fan base in and then introduce them to like something new that they can easily latch onto. Yeah, it's the same as if like you have a bunch of friends who are like, oh, listen, we all love Fast and the Furious. Do you know there's a Fast and the Furious spinoff coming out? Like they're probably going to be into that. But if you go, we all like Fast and the Furious. Do you know about Bullet, which also has wild car chases from the 60s through downtown San Francisco? Let's check that out. Like, less of your Fast and the Furious friends will be into that, but some of them still will. And then you've just, you know, like, enriched their life with a cool movie. Mm -hmm. And you did so many panels at your time at Image. Did you have any experience doing panels before Image? And then during Image, like, what was the grind like? Like, uh, during heavy con season, were you, like, out at a con, like, every weekend, like, during the heavy season? Oh, man, I think the worst was we, when we did, I think it was Emerald City Comic Con, C2E2, and WonderCon in like a, a four-week stretch. So it was like a back-to-back -back rest week and then right back at it. I think the most I, most cons I did in the year was maybe like six or seven. But I would have a panel or more uh, each day of the show. So I actually lost count as time went on. Once I hit like 40 panels a year... I was like, no one else is on this level, so I'm just going to stop counting, you know? <laughs> that is insane. Yeah, and it's fans. absurd, but I there's something about me to where I I feel comfortable on stage. Like, I'm not really afraid mm. of the audience. I did a panel uh, at for Viz, actually, at Anime Expo last year, yeah. the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure panel. There were 3,000 people in the audience, which is absurd. Oh, yeah, that was great. And, like, I... Yeah, I really loved you and uh, Uriah on that panel. Like, you were great hosts, and... Like, you just carry that enthusiasm, like, all the way through it. Yeah, and I was I was lucky there because Uriah and I have opposite energies, so it's almost like <laughs> up guy and down guy, and we just meet in the middle and it's great. <laughs> yeah, it creates a great dynamic when you have, like, kind of two different, like, levels of expression. Yeah. Like, uh, 
that just creates a good flow for, that the audience can latch onto. It also just creates a good dynamic for kind of comedy to play off of, or like just a different way to deliver information. Yeah, for sure. And at Image, I um, like you mentioned the the grind. The con part was hard. Um, I got to a point where if I was home for a weekend, I would feel weird because I was so mm. used to traveling, which is you know great for the Southwest rewards miles, but not that great for you know like peace of mind. But the actual panel part, the talking to people part, I, I would wing it a lot because like I would take it very seriously. I, I don't mean wing it in the sense that I would just like get on stage and do whatever. Like I would prepare, I would read everyone's books. There'd be like an email chain ahead of the panel. But when I got on stage, I would basically have a PowerPoint with a bunch of images kind of cropped to fit like that 169 projector display. So they show up nice and big and the images were more prompts for questions I wanted to ask or things I wanted to explore. Like sometimes it was just as simple as like putting an image on a screen and being like, Hey, Scotty Young, tell me about this joke, you know, and he would do a Scotty Young thing and people would eat it up. Others, it would be kind of a, um, like for the wicked and the divine, uh, Kieran Gillen and, uh, Jamie McKelvey's comic is coming to an end soon. They have this panel. It was like an all black page that said, everything is going to be all right. And as the series got on and more, characters in the series started dying you realize like oh wait everything's not going to be all right and there was a panel i did with them where i put that up and the audience immediately laughed because they got it <laughs> like it was kind of like an in-joke in the family kind of thing mm-hmm. so just the more i did the more i realized like working the audience is important like get them on your side first thing as moderator don't get in front of the talent like they're not the audience isn't there for you the audience is there for the, the talent so your job is to basically be a conduit from the talent to the audience. So I would, um, I would mostly just get out of the way. I would like come up with good questions. I would find things that interest me and I would trust the people who made the books to have the answers that would interest the audience. And I was very fortunate in that image didn't really place a lot of restraints on my panels. Um, I basically got to choose the rosters and the titles and the descriptions. And the secret is that all the descriptions were different, but all the panels were the same. Just me talking <laughs> to like, you know, four or five people about different things. But mm-hmm. it works. Like there is something about like that alchemy, just letting people talk about what they love. Like people make comics because they enjoy it. Very few people get rich doing comics. And even the ones that do get rich still hopefully, you know, like Robert Kirkman genuinely loves comics and that's really cool to see. Yeah. I was I attended one panel that Robert Kirkman was on. It was like a New York Comic Con a few years ago. It was a Walking Dead panel where mm-hmm. he was on and he just had so much to say about the book and just like uh, was really enthused to be in the room with the fans and like just kind of talk about the series and like his work and like it was really uh, enthralling panel because he just brought so much energy and enthusiasm and love to it and I think that's really what's cool about the best panels is that at their core they can be as simple as just people talking about what they love and that it seems like that's what you really focus on you really focus on the people like the audience and the people on the panel and just sharing what they love, united in what they love. Yeah. I uh, would joke with friends that it was kind of doing live comics criticism <laughs> in a positive sense. You know, I couldn't get on an image stage and be like, your book sucks. Tell us why. But I could be like, hey, like these are some themes you're dealing with. Like, can you kind of talk about where they came from? You know, uh, Rick Remender had some great answers about like how depression influences his work. Nick Dragata talks a lot about how manga changed the way that he draws comics and like what that brought to his life. Like things like that, I feel like you don't get when it's just like, your new book's coming out on Monday. What's it about? 
Who drew it? All right, thank you very much. Here's the pre-order code. You know, that's kind of boring. But like right. the meat and potatoes, like really digging into something is fun. And people enjoy that. Like they want to know how the sausage is made. They want to realize like, oh, I grew up on the same comics as Kelly Sue DeConnick. Like that's cool. Mm-hmm. It's really all about the why. Like, yeah. why is the story being told? Why are we here in this room right now uh, talking? Yeah. And yeah, I think that's a great approach. And I think my secret that I did that most other moderators that I've seen haven't is working in crowd work, like talking to the audience during the panel, even teasing the audience a little bit. Like, you know, people do like, hey, do you want to see something special? And that's fine. But I would even do like call on random people in the audience for Q&A. Be like, hey, what's your favorite comic? Like, let's start there. Like, what's your favorite image comic uh, would, would be my usual question. And then I could launch from a discussion into that because they would say like, oh, well, my favorite book is... East of West because I like sci-fi, blah, 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 blah. I'd be like, okay, cool. I could then kind of switch the follow-up question from the audience to the panelists and work everyone into the conversation so that, like, no one has a chance to, you know, fall asleep in the front row or something like that. Mm-hmm. Keep everyone engaged. Yeah. And, like, oh, everyone has a stake in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's awesome. Yeah, I basically learned that from stand-up comedy and rap music. Like you have to, you have to move the crowd. That's what MC stands for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really all about the best way to communicate with your audience. Like I think that's yeah, it's really what we are all coming back to with comics communication. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But just go back into the grind again. Like, is that probably a reason that you left Image for this? Like, how did that come about? Like, what made you uh, decide to? go from working in American comics to working at Viz? Um, it was kind of a lot of things happening all at once. Image moved to from the Bay Area, uh, where I'd moved in 2007, to Portland, Oregon, which was, I'll say it snowed 10 inches overnight, two weeks after I moved there. And Whoa. I can count the number of times <laughs> I've seen snow in my life, like on maybe one hand. And I was like, ah, yeah. not for me. I get it. But then also my main duties at the time were working on Image Plus, the like the official Image magazine that came with uh, previews. We would do like interviews and uh, spotlights on upcoming books. But like because I was pressed before, I still like caught up. You know, I would still follow a bunch of journalists. I would read like news about the news, and I was like, wow. So my day job right now is basically doing a print magazine in the comics industry, and print magazines are dying at an alarming rate. I should probably mm. diversify my options, you know? I mean, this is post-Print Shonen Jump, like, closing down and, like, switching to all digital. Yeah, like, um, ESPN, they just announced ESPN, the magazine is shutting down, and that was one of my, like, primary influences on how I approached editing Image Plus. Wow. That kind of made me sad a little bit, actually. But, like, there's just all these things. I would see them dropping like flies, and I was like, man, like, this is definitely going to stop, and I need to find out what I'm doing next. And I was fortunate enough that my friends, Chris Butcher, who used to work at Udon at the Beguiling, uh, he's a co-founder of the Toronto Comics Arts Festival. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Deb Aoki, who is like the manga blogger of all manga bloggers, you know, she's like yeah. the godmother of this thing. <laughs> uh, they were like, they recommended me to Viz and were like, Hey, this guy loves manga. He really knows comics. He edits like he's, I feel like I'm just complimenting myself now. So I'm going to stop there. But they, they made a very compelling case to Viz enough for me to get an interview. So, you know, I flew back to the Bay Area um, a few times and we did interviews, kind of a back and forth. And finally, like it just worked out. They were like, we want you to edit manga for us. 
And I was like, cool, because I get to go back to Oakland, which I love, you know, with my whole heart. I've got an Oakland tattoo on one arm and my my, uh, (laughs) hometown tattoo on another arm. There's no snow, which is a huge bonus. And it's something new, like it's a new challenge. And it's also working more closely with comic books, with manga. Like I'm seeing, you know, raw pages in their original form versus doing that occasionally on, you know, like some uh, side projects with uh, creators that I know. It's more like I basically just threw myself into the deep end of comic books with the intent to sink or swim. And so far, so good. Like it feels like a good fit. That's awesome. And yeah, I mean, it's, you were getting these pages like oftentimes raw from the Japanese side and like you have to like kind of really work on them just from uh, the ground up in terms of translation and editing and all that. Yeah. Like every week I get a new batch of pages for almost every week we get, sometimes there's a different frequency, you know, if people take breaks or things like that. Like I get a new batch mm-hmm. of pages for Hell's Paradise and I'm like, man, this is awesome. Like just seeing it like this, just straight up inks um, on the Ruby series that I work on. We see everything from the storyboards to the pencils to the final. And like mm-hmm. manga storyboards are great because they're basically just detailed thumbnails. Yeah. And you never see those, you know, like I feel like I was, I had pretty good Google foof in terms of finding comic stuff, but like that stuff's not really online, mm-hmm. but they're so cool to me because it's like, oh, this is the clay the comic is formed from. Yeah. You only see that kind of stuff when they're like included in volumes of manga, like as bonuses, like, yeah. Uh, in Sigumi Oba and Takashi Obata collab, sometimes you'll see like storyboards that Oba kind of drew for Obata, like as he was planning the story and stuff. And those were always really fascinating to me. Yeah, it's really cool. And even like Ev is, um, on Ruby specifically, I work with Hisashi Sasaki, who was like mm-hmm. the editor of Shonen Jump in the nineties. Um, he yeah. oversaw some amazing series. It's like working with, I mean, he's in Bakuman, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. he's one of the characters. <laughs> like it's, my life is, Amazing. I'm really, I'm really grateful to be where I am right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you are working on some really big, high profile things. That's like you're working on JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Ruby. These are really big in the zeitgeist right now. These are insanely big properties. Like, does that feel like it's such a huge responsibility, you know, to be tasked with working on these franchises? It kind of does and doesn't. Like, I definitely recognize their weight for lack of a better phrase, like their kind of impact on the culture, uh, both Japanese and American, Mm -hmm. but it's still something I have to do day to day. Like I have to approach it like a process rather than a mountain to climb. Right. So it's like, you know, step one, get the script, step two, get the letters, step three, get it all proofread and copy edited. Step four, you know, like finalize InDesign. Like it's kind of the same, uh, same flow for everything. So you can kind of get into a groove, but it's Mm -hmm. pretty cool. Like, when I got hired, Uriah Brown was editing JoJo's. And when he was like, oh, I think, you know, like, I'm going to shift my job duties. Like, I can't really edit so many books anymore. I was like, oh, I want that. I love JoJo's. Not even really thinking about the fact that it's JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, you know? Like, I was just like, I want this yeah. challenge. Like, I want to give back a little bit in my own way. I want to make make sure the English edition lives up to what, you know, Araki did in Japan. Yeah, like, as a fan, you want to ensure that the book comes out as best as possible. Like Araki's message is delivered to its audience, like in the way he intended. Yeah, exactly. And that's in everything from design to translation. Like Adam Grano uh, is a uh, designer of his, and he designed the new JoJo's Bizarre Adventure uh, Diamond is Unbreakable volumes. 
And we were like, you know, we talked a little bit about it. We were like, oh, what kind of approach do we want? We were like, oh, like a fashion magazine would be kind of cool, but maybe pulling <laughs> back from that a little bit, something a little more gothic. Like we wanted to get everything Iraqi in there that we could. Yeah. And I think that, you know, obviously all our designs are approved by the original creator. Like no manga companies just making stuff up and putting it out there. Uh, at least to my knowledge, I feel like that'd be a, a huge mistake. And we came up with the design and we sent it, you know, to the licensor to Shueisha. And they were like, all right, do it. Looks cool. And that was when I was like, oh man, like we're really doing this. And that's really awesome because those books, those new Diamond is Unbreakable omnibuses, those are like kind of made from the ground up because whereas the previous JoJo's omnibuses that have been released have been based on the Jojoniums from Japan, like this is completely like something that you helped design. Yeah, it's all new. It's um so we're doing two in one editions essentially. So like volume one, I think it's like volume twenty nine and thirty of uh Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, the entire series. Mm-hmm. While the Jojoniums, they kind of mixed up the volumes more. It was sort of like one or two story arcs per volume, but we kind of can't do that, or we'd rather not do that without mm-hmm. like working directly with the mangaka. You know, that's like kind of a step too far. Yeah, though generally it works out that the volumes will contain a complete story, or at least in between the two volumes, they will. Yeah, like, I think the end of the second volume is basically leaving off of the Nishimura brother storyline. So yeah, that's exactly. like a great just single book to have together. And I'm actually, um, we're putting volume two to press, uh, I guess it's in press right now. We're working on it. We're working on getting it to the printer and I'm having a lot of fun with it because it's mostly all about Koichi Hirose, like Josuke's mm-hmm. young friend. And it's mm-hmm. the volume where, like, if you've seen the anime, uh, he has several transformations. Like he becomes like a much cooler looking guy, like his powers get cooler. And all that happens here. And it's cool to see it just two in one because you're like, oh, I would have missed this if I read this separately, you know, like six months apart. Reading it together, like, this character is awesome. Yeah, you get, like, both of Echoes' initial transformations. Like, yeah. like, first hatches and then, like, act two with the Yukako storyline. So yeah, that's the, really cool. The uh, Yukako Yamagishi falls in love is probably mm. my favorite arc in Diamond is Unbreakable so far. <laughs> like, just in terms of what I've worked on. Because it's, it's so JoJo. Like, there's this, this kind of indefinable thing about it where it's just like, this is what Araki does. He'll give you this weird idea. He'll give you these over-the-top characters. And by the end of it, you're just smiling. Like, it just all works out well. Definitely. And I've heard you say that part four uh, is your favorite JoJo's part. And, like, what about part four specifically do you think is, like, really stands out in contrast with the other parts and like really captures like a certain magic to it. Uh, it was actually my introduction to JoJo's way back in the day. My mom took a trip overseas to Italy uh, when I was a kid. I don't, I don't remember why or what year it was, just that we were uh, living in Virginia at the time, so like mid-90s. And she came back, she was like, hey, you like comic books? I found this comic book. And it was an Italian edition of like a later volume of Diamond is Unbreakable. Hmm. The one with Kira on the cover in his white suit with the green tie. And I don't read Italian. Like, I, you know, I, I speak Spanish. I'm learning Japanese and Portuguese. I don't know anything about Italian. And I certainly didn't in the 90s. So it was just this weird book that I couldn't figure out. But the drawings were, like, wild. So it kind of stuck in my head. And I love Stardust Crusaders. Like, I feel like that's kind of what solidified my JoJo love. But Diamond is Unbreakable is the one where it kind of blows up the concept. Like, it really breaks out and goes in some really cool new directions. 
like uh Rohan, like his stand lets him draw a comic in four days. Like that's amazing. <laughs> it's such a weird, dumb idea in the most beautiful way. Or uh the uh Italian restaurant guy where he's like he comes across as a huge villain, but then he's just helping people. He's just really picky about his kitchen. Mm-hmm. I think it's really awesome that in part four, Araki really starts to diversify the powers and also thinks of powers that can be used kind of in like daily life situations like Tonio's yeah. power to just you know make this, uh, like have his stand, like go inside his food and then just like heal all of his guess like uh ailments in this grotesque way and then just re just end up healing them yeah it's so good i mean it's truly bizarre like it really delivers on its premise because Mm -hmm. there's just something about it where you're like this is weird but it's like the good kind of weird yeah it it just has so much more license to go stranger whereas stan started out very simple like star platinum you know he it punches things really fast or uh, magicians red it uses fire and now yeah. then in part four we get like how can these characters use these powers in like really interesting ways it's not just like these elemental kind of concepts but something even more abstract something like we can extrapolate from daily life even like just the idea of like the the hair stand that yukago has or like echoes using like wor- sound effects to like enforce actions on the people yeah the sound effects thing i love so much because it's like obviously i love comic books i hope hopefully that's clear by now but like that power is specifically using the power of comic books like if you think about what that would look like in real life like it doesn't make any sense like there's no you can't stamp a sound onto someone but because there are all these amazing looking sound effects in comics and manga like Araki can play with the fourth wall a little bit in a way that doesn't feel like playing with the fourth wall because you just accept it. Like you bought into, into the context of the comic, like sound effects happen. So it's normal for sound effects to suddenly start happening to people. In hindsight, I'm kind of glad that Viz went, uh, went with the uh, decision to kind of maybe not touch up the sound effects because I can't imagine how much work that would have been if, uh, if sound effects had to be completely redrawn in English. Oh yeah. And honestly, a lot of it for me, um, and for, you know, Mark McMurray, the letterer as well, like Iraqi sound effects look great. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. the things that the, you know, the lines he was laying down are just really cool and inviting. Like there's just something about them. There's like a swagger to them that we don't want to lose. And I'm mm-hmm. sure that we could find a good person to retouch the sound effects to come up with new sound effects, but it wouldn't be the same. Like, yeah. I think JoJo's is like, I'm far from a purist. But I think JoJo's is one that really benefits from this kind of more uh, archival approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you planning on learning Italian for when you eventually get to part five? Oh, man. <laughs> let, me get, let me get Japanese down first, and then we'll work on Italian. That would be amazing, though, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there is, like, Italian in the original Japanese uh, manga of Vento Oreo, like if Araki uses the Italian language at all, but if he did, like that'd be that'd be a good knowledge set to kind of yeah. have when you're translating it. Yeah, I think there's a few flourishes. Um, even with Tonio, the the chef, there's a few Italian phrases that he uses, but not over. It's not like X Men where everyone talks in like a really stereotypical accent for their ethnicity. It's just mm-hmm. more like, oh, sometimes this pops out, you know? Yeah. But I also wonder, like, with a series like 
JoJo's because going back to sound effects, you know, that's so much a part of the manga, a part of the story. Like, is working on a series like JoJo's a challenge sometimes to like preserve every aspect of kind of like Araki's intentions and how he uses art when you're doing redrawing or even just in translating phase and extending it even to other series where the sound effects are redone and uh, translated into English. Is that a challenge to kind of communicate with the letterer and trying to figure out like how do we make a choice? How do we change the change this, uh, redraw this in a way that still preserves the original intent? Yeah, it definitely, definitely does. I'm very aware of, I guess, call it real estate of the page, like how much space you have to do things. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing sound effects, when you're, you know, when there's art in place, there's only a very specific amount of space that you can use. So like, if you have a sound effect in Japanese, it just says like, boom, you know, an explosion. That's cool. But that's only three letters, you know, or just, uh, I think it's just two in, in, uh, kana. But mm-hmm. in English, we would want to do like a kaboom. And that's what, six letters? Like that's twice the amount of space. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to really think about what the sound you want is going to be, how it's going to look, and then also how it's going to work with the art. Um, one thing we do that's kind of subtle that I didn't realize until I started working at Viz is all of our sound effects are the same color or shading as the original Japanese sound effects, mm-hmm. which helps preserve the balance of the page. So there's not something like a big, like, black kaboom, where in Japanese it might have been, might have speed lines over the letters or something. It Like, it actually fits with the art. And we've got some really good letterers and uh, retouchers in our, in our roster, in our stable, that really kind of go the extra mile. Like, they really try to figure things out. I had a lot of fun last year working on Burn the Witch, which was uh, Taito mm-hmm. Kubo's follow-up to Bleach. It was a one-shot that he did. And, you know, like, I love Bleach. Like, I love Akira, but, like, Bleach gets me, like, I say a lot of really dumb and hyperbolic things about it online because <laughs> I love it so much. But the letterer on that was uh, a guy by the name of Brandon Bovia, who's done a bunch of stuff for, um, I think, Seven Seas and maybe Yen as well. But he's also a Bleach fan. And I think, like, you know, he knew me from Twitter. He's like, hey, I like Bleach. You like Bleach. What if we did this one shot in the original Bleach font? Like, what if we just kept that little bit of continuity? And I was like, dang, like, that is a cool idea. Like, maybe 10 people across the world will notice, (laughs) and we're two of them. But it's a cool way to kind of pay homage to what came before and also, like, have a very specific tone. Because Mm -hmm. the font is kind of, it's like the face of the book, in a way. Yeah. Like, if the book has an ugly font, like, it, you can make a good comic bad, like, straight up, I feel. But Brandon Mm -hmm. was thinking about it, he was like, this would be a cool thing to do with this. And it fits like, this is how we see Kubo's art already. So like, let's just keep that going and kind of have like a little train that way. I was like, yeah, this is, these are the creative decisions that I want to make that like, I want to think about and really figure out is like, how can we best serve the original creator? I really think the, your team at Wiz does an amazing job troubleshooting and making those excellent creative decisions to carry over that intent and that meaning. Like I was comparing uh, the new edition of Yuri's Yatsura with the old edition from back in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And it's a really remarkable difference between the approach now and the approach back then where they would increase the size of war balloons, like completely change jokes. And it was, it's still fun to read, but like a lot of the original tent is missing in that original version from the 90s 
But in the new version of Yurisiatsu, like, it is so much closer to Takahashi's original vision. And I compare with, like, the Japanese volume I have off Bookwalker, and I look at the sound effects are so much closer in, like, design and, and, like, the way that they are placed on the page, the, the economy of the page, like, like, everything in the arc is preserved. Like, nothing of the original art is obscured. And I really appreciate, like, that persistence to preserve the core of the original work in the translation. Yeah. And I think as a, as an industry, like everyone, um, not just this, I think we've come a long way in our appreciation and understanding of manga. Mm -hmm. Like we don't feel like we have to Americanize it to that extent anymore. Like we know that American fans like this stuff. We don't need to, was it Pokemon that had Onigiri that they called donuts or something like that? Yes. Yes. Four kids uh, made a lot of changes (laughs) like that. Yeah, like, we don't have to do, like, I can get Onigiri delivered to my apartment in, like, the next 30 minutes, um, which actually sounds really good right now, but, like, these things are, they've always been normal, but now we know that they are normal, like, we accept these as being part of manga, uh, which is why, like, they read right to left now, when in the 90s, generally, they did not. Um, like, I have a whole collection of old Viz books from the 90s that are all flipped left to right, and retouched lettering mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And I love them, but they're a different artifact than what we make nowadays at Viz, which is much, like, I hate the word authentic. Like, I feel like it, there's, like, all kinds of weird subtext wrapped up in that, but I think it is more true to what these books originally were. Most definitely. And especially with something like Urusei Yatsura, like, Rumiko Takahashi is, she's like a top ten comics creator. Like, she's so good. She's like the mm-hmm. Jackie Chan of making comic books. <laughs> and, or maybe he's the Rumiko Takahashi of making action movies. But it's so important to preserve her work the way that she intended it because she's killer. Like she knocks it out of the park every time. Like there were, I've been rewatching, uh, Ranma One Half on Hulu just while I work around home. And her sense of comic story, like comic timing and storytelling is so good. And people understand that now. They know, like, a lot of things translate in 2019 that might not have translated in 1999. So we can leave those jokes in. We can keep those specific cultural references. And when we hit ones where we can't, then we can find better solutions than writing an all-new joke. Yes, I love the I love the cultural notes at the back of the Yurtsiatsu book. I like that that reference is there for... You know, maybe readers who don't understand maybe the Japanese cultural references in Yurisayatsura, because the series is rooted in so many cultural things. Yeah. Like, just in terms of the premise, the idea of Oni, and then jokes made around that, like, especially in the Setsuban chapters, which are a regular thing. You know, I'm glad that there are translation notes to, like, you know, have that uh, resource there to kind of understand more context behind the series, but still, the series itself is left intact and not, like, fundamentally changed like in the original years the Yatsura translation they changed the the setsubun joke where like ataru sees lum's dad for the first time he thinks that oh it's an oni i gotta throw these beans at him get him out of the house mm. and then in the original 90s uh translation visited they changed that to a halloween joke where ataru was like oh what is this a trick-or-treater i'm trying candy at you so <laughs> it's like I really appreciate that like now we can preserve like the original meaning and we don't have to like but now we can also like are in a place where uh, readers are also more amenable to kind of learn while they're reading and like appreciate that this is something 
uh, for and something different. And, you know, these cultural notes are a good resource to kind of understand things that might not translate, but, you know, you can read and get an understanding and a better appreciation of. Yeah, for sure. And even in the 90s, like they took a lot of liberties, but it, it was with an eye towards making manga a success because it was new. Mm-hmm. They were like, what do American audiences expect out of this? And when you're working in a, a form that's like 10 or 15 years old in the U.S., it's hard to tell. Like, you really don't know. But post-Tokyo Pop, I mean, post-100% authentic manga, we know people want the real thing. While in the 90s, we had no way if, you know, like the internet wasn't what it is today. Like, book sales, bookstores weren't what they were today. But then they put manga, you know, in Beat Alton booksellers and Books a Million, and the kids swarmed and just read on the ground. You know, I remember those days. So I totally get why they rewrote a lot of stuff. But I'm also glad that we kind of moved past that now. Most definitely. But on the subject of rom-coms like Yuri or the works of Rumika Takahashi, you also work on We Never Learn, which is a very different series from JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Yeah, no kidding. And both Shonen Jump series. They are. And... It's incredible kind of the variety of different types of series like you get to work on at Viz. I'm wondering, like, is it a challenge to get in a different mindset when you're working on these different series? It's not a challenge, I don't think. There's always like a little bit of an adjustment period. But I'm I'm fortunate with uh we never learned that the serialization editor is John Bay, who's been, you know, guiding the series from the beginning. Uh he's really mm-hmm. good. And like he handles the original translation and things like that. And then I pick it up for the graphic novels where I do like a, a full on like proofread, read through, rewrite lines if necessary, like make sure everything is like super ship shape and uh, retouched and send it back out. But it's almost more, it's just always again, like how can I best serve the original work, the original creator? And mm-hmm. a series like We Never Learned, like the jokes in that come so, so hot and heavy, like the facial expressions are so good. Some of the situations they get into are just so absurd that there's almost, it's almost easy to do because it's just, it's like a clean pitch right over the plate, you know? <laughs> yeah. And all I have to do is connect. And it's fun. It's definitely a different way of doing things. Like for my personal reading, I don't, I don't read too many rom-coms. I'm much more of like a, um, just either fighting or like people cussing and smoking cigarettes in most of the comics that I have. But we never learn it's fun because it's comedy. Like it's just straight up, like, how do we get these jokes across? And sometimes, you know, you can't. There is, um, there's a joke in, uh, the serialization, I think in the fifth chapter 50 something, and we never learn where a character says, uh, how do I make a good curry? Someone else hears it as, how do I get a boyfriend? Because the words for curry and boyfriend are similar in Japanese. It's like mm-hmm. kare and kare, I think. There's no way to translate that directly. Like, it's just not going to make sense. Yeah. So you kind of have to go with the best, you know, the line of best fit rather than like kind of going a hundred percent exactly the same joke. Or try to force like a different approximation. Yeah, exactly. So it's just all about being true to what you have and also finding people, finding translators, finding letterers who get the series, who get the work and kind of are on that same page. Like we never learned has much cuter sound effects than anything else I work on. <laughs> and that's because, you know, it's like a cute rom-com. Like, it's full of hijinks and antics. Like, it doesn't really need, like, the hard, like, super grim, all-square, blocked-out sound effects. Like, that's not really what the series is about. 
Mm-hmm. I'm also wondering, from your perspective, you know, as someone who maybe doesn't read any rom-coms, and also I think uh, of having read a previous interview, you uh, were not a fan of Nisekoi, which was uh, Jump's previous staple rom-com. Like, what do you think, like, really makes We Never Learn stand out? Because a lot of people... Uh, us included, really find We Never Learn like a really uh, enjoyable series, and like we, and, like it really, we feel that there is just something about it that stands out in contrast to the other rom-coms we read. Like, what do you feel about it that really, really sets it apart? That's a good question. Actually, I did like Nisekoi. The uh, the art in that series was off the charts, and actually, I think they really nailed the ending in a way that is really tough for a series like that, where there's so many expectations. But there's hmm. something about We Never Learned where it's almost like the creator of We Never Learned actually did a Nisekoi spinoff manga. Yes. Uh, magical Patissie uh, Kosaki-chan. Yes, exactly. I was scrambling for the name. <laughs> um, and I think that what We Never Learned shares with Nisekoi is that similar sense of kind of just pell-mell sense of humor. Like, get these jokes off, like, get these hijinks going. But what it where it differs is that the setting is much more down-to-earth. Mm-hmm. Um, like Nisekoi, I mean, one of the characters was like the daughter or the son of uh, Yakuza. Well, both the characters were, you know, children of gangsters. Yeah. There's not really anything on that level in We Never Learn. Like, there's like a maid cafe, and that's as risky, that's as, you know, risky as it gets. But with We Never Learn, I really think that it's the characters are very easy to digest. They kind of fit into certain types, but then they twist those types at the same time. Like, the very, like, smart and prim girl is still, like, very nervous inside. Like, she doesn't know how to admit her crush to her crush. And then, you know, the one who's, like, the super, like, genki girl, she's just all over the place. And she's also too shy to admit her crush, but she'll still try to kind of demonstrate it a little bit. And it leads mm-hmm. to these perfect situations. Like, there's a chapter of We Never Learn where um Rizu Ogata forgets her glasses for the day. So she's walking around squinting and everyone's like, wow, like she's really upset today. What is going on? What did I do? And it's such a simple joke, but it's so good because you're like, oh no, like that is what that would look like in real life. She would just look angry because she has to squint to see the chalkboard. <laughs> so I think it's like a little bit more universal. Like where Nisekoi, yeah. the big moments were like, ah, so-and-so came back in a helicopter to, to declare her love. And we never right. learn. It's like, ah, this person accidentally kissed this person at a shrine and then ran away and didn't say anything, you know? It's a little bit more grounded. Yeah, absolutely. F- yeah, focused on, like, daily... Whereas Nizukoi had the fantastic elements of, like, there were ninja bodyguards and uh, there are these big Yakuza families. Like, Nizukoi is just about kind of normal people. Yeah. Just kind of struggling in high school and worried about their futures. And I think that is a huge point of appeal. Yeah, I think the high school thing, especially because the entire series, it's like, how do, how do I fulfill my dreams if my dreams aren't my strength? Mm-hmm. Like everyone has something they're good at and everyone has something they love. That's not always the same thing. And you know, like, I've got no head for numbers. Like I am far from a mathematician. And I just think like, if I grew up excelling in accounting, but all I wanted to do be was like a poet, like how would that make me feel? You know? Right. And I think that what's a strength of the series is also that it has empathy and an interest in the feelings of its characters and that struggle of, I really have this thing that I love and want to do, but I'm not good at it. 
And it really digs into like how that affects these characters and kind of how they struggle with it. And then they learn to kind of overcome their sense of doubt and or insecurities uh, through the help of the people around them, you know, uh, especially UA as a sport. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure if you guys are current with the recent Shonen Jump chapters. There have been even developments with the teachers in the series where they're like, oh, yeah, I gave up on a dream. What does that say about me? And that's really, yeah. really fascinating to me. Like, it's a very, like, there's a lot of, um, it can get raunchy. It can get very funny, but it's very kind at heart. Like, no one in the series is made fun of. They're not like, everyone's taken seriously. They might poke fun a little bit. But it's never like, you're dumb for wanting this. It's more like, this is a funny situation you got yourself into. And that, mm-hmm. that's a very thin line for comedy. You know, they say, um, only punch up, don't punch down. And I don't think that we never learn punches down much at all. Most definitely. I think it's very respectful to its audience and like it's really, uh, communicating a story that, you know, is very relatable and they can latch on to kind of the lessons that it, it is exploring and the ideas it's exploring and like find something comforting and something they can take away from that, that they can apply in their lives. Yeah. Or just something cathartic in the series. Yeah, for sure. And like we were saying earlier, like you mentioned, um, intentionality, interiority, like all the math problems in that series are real. Like they're taken from study books. So mm-hmm. it's not just, you know, like a vague idea of like, ah, we have to do homework. It's like, no, like, these are the actual problems people have to overcome to get to be what they want to be. And it's very subtle. Like it doesn't really come up like front and center, but it's a little detail that I really appreciate about the series. Most definitely. The attention to detail and uh, respect for the audience is like so important. Yeah, I think it, that's why uh, a lot of Shonen Jump series resonate with, you know, audiences. And especially when you're a kid, like with teens. And uh, I think like, a lot of the best stories, like One Piece, Naruto, like they focus on young protagonists with these big dreams, but the like at the core of the stories is like a desire that's very real that you can latch onto even at an early age. And I'm wondering because the show, you know, the readership of shonen manga, you know, they they grow up like, and these series like One Piece, like Naruto, you know, they can go on for uh decades and stuff and like by the you can start one of these series when you're a kid and then when it ends you're an adult and actually the hu- a huge chunk of the shonen jump readership i think are adults i think there was a recent survey poll that shueisha did that kind of revealed that like 50 percent of the readership in japan are over the age of 20 so i was wondering kind of like as, as someone who is also been a fan of shonen jump manga grown up with them like do you feel that you get something different out of these stories now as an adult than you did as a kid. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, basically I turned 30 and suddenly comics about friendship <laughs> made me cry all the time. Like it's just so pure <laughs> and beautiful, you know, but there's, I think that shonen comics and superhero comics are very similar in a lot of ways in terms of who they appeal to and why. But I think with shonen, especially so much of the, the conflict that people latch onto is internal rather than, you know, being like, I got to beat this bad guy. It's like, no, I have to protect my friends or live up to the expectations of the people who came before me. Like it's more of an emotional motivation rather than like a conflict oriented motivation. Like Mm -hmm. in a Spider-Man book, he's like, look, I got to beat Venom because Venom's a bad guy and I don't like him. Like that's cool. Like that totally works for me. I love it. 
while in Naruto, it's like, I have to beat Sasuke because he's my best friend and he's going to ruin his life if he keeps doing this stuff. Like, I have to drag him back from hell itself. And Sasuke's like, I have to kill you because you're my best friend. And there's something just so interesting in there. So, like, just a texture that works really well. I, um, Mm -hmm. what is my favorite Shonen comic? Probably Dragon Ball, I think. Like, the first volume was very much action or action comedy, kind of like an adventure series. Uh, the second Mm -hmm. was much more of a battle manga, but there was still that heart, that emotional heart. I think about the scene where Gohan fights Cell. And Goku's like, you can do this, son. Like, I know you can do this. You were great. You were beautiful. You were loved. Like, this is your fight. But what he misses is that Gohan is a kid and he wants, you know, be like some kind of scientist. I'm blanking on which type. Well, he wants to be a great scholar. Yes, great scholar. That's it. But Piccolo knows Gohan differently than Goku does. And that the difference between those two is really interesting to me because neither person is wrong. And they're both coming from a place of love. Mm-hmm. I think Goku got it wrong during the cell fight because he, he believed in his son too much. Um, which sounds yeah. horrible, but like he thought his <laughs> son was a little further ahead than he actually was. Mm. But it also makes sense from his perspective because like as a, he was so different as a kid. Yeah. That, like he thinks that his son is also the same way, but he doesn't kind of realize that Gohan. There's still something in him that's scared, that's vulnerable, and that's afraid to, like, kind of let his anger out that, you know, Goku has never had a problem with. Mm-hmm. And that emotional core is just, like, that's that's what makes Shonen move for me. Um, mm-hmm. Something like One Piece, there's so many good jokes in that series, but my favorite moment, like, even after all this time is, um, I think it's in volume eight or nine, when Nami asked Luffy for help during... Uh, the, Ar- the Arlong arc. And he just like puts his hat on her head and he's like, of course. And he goes and wrecks Arlong. And there's just something about that where it's like, it's not just about the fight. It's about the emotions that got you to the fight. It's about trusting someone enough to put your fate in their hands. And then they trust you or they love you to a point where they're going to deliver each and every time. Mm-hmm. It's just, there's something so resonant and, I don't want to say healing. That makes me sound kind of culty, but it does make me feel really good to read good shonen manga. Yeah. I get what you mean, yeah. Because the emotions are just so powerful in the stories. Cathartic, yeah. That's it, exactly. Like, it lets me get out, like, some or work out some feelings I might be having or something like that. And so mm-hmm. much of it, you know, the, the three pillars of shonen manga are friendship, effort, and victory. It's like community, work, and then you win. And that just feels so good to me in 2019 America. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely something that you love to be reminded of every now and again. It kind of brings you back to kind of like a a nice place of like, you know, this is something to still believe in, even, you know, when it seems like the world has gone mad. Like there's still something worth fighting for. And I think Shonen Manga is really inspirational in that way because, you know, it's about stories, about struggle. About yeah. characters kind of working their way up from uh, from the bottom and, you know, achieving their dreams. And mm-hmm. I like the joke that I mostly read comics aimed at teenage boys and old men. Because I love <laughs> shonen manga and I love, you know, like Kazuo Koike who just passed away. Uh, Monkey Punch. I love both those guys. One of my favorite series right now is Ajin Demihuman by uh, Gamon Sakurai. 
And it's oh, basically, yeah. yeah, I mean, like you guys, you, you people know about this series. It's fun. It's incredibly violent, but it's like pop violence. Like it doesn't make me feel grossed out. I'm just like, ah, that was a good fight scene. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It feels like a combination of like JoJo and X-Men almost. It's like if JoJo and X-Men had a video game together. <laughs> you know, because there's the whole infinite lives thing. Mm-hmm. Half the chapter titles are like Call of Duty, Battlefield, like World at War. I wonder what that's about. <laughs> yeah, you can really tell what the author is really influenced in and kind of like some of the ideas, like what he likes to put into his work. Yeah, exactly. And there's such a there's a very small detail um, in that series that makes me laugh and I can't figure it out. But some of the characters wear shirts with the slogans of old TV shows. Like huh. Californication and Strike Back and all this like stuff I've never seen. And I can't figure out why, but it adds a lot to the personality of the characters. Yeah, I, I've, I've always enjoyed that detail as well. Yeah, I'm just holding out hope for like a Seinfeld shirt for the end of the series. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, I mean, I think that Shonen works for adults because it's easy to digest. Like, I don't think there's many shonen manga that can be read on an adult level, like an adult reading level in terms of complexity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think the ideas in the book benefit from an adult mind. Like, as a kid, you're like, of course, like, friends are important because, like, that's all you know. But as an adult, you're like, oh, like, I've lost friendships. Like, I've had friends move away or pass away or we fall out. Friends are incredible. They can change your life. And I think yeah. once you get that experience, it's much... uh much more resonant, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really valuable in long-running works, especially because the artist, and oftentimes artists in Shonen Jump, they start at such a young age, and as they grow up, they also gain more experiences and gain different perspectives, and that's reflected in the stories. Like, in Naruto, Masashi Kishimoto's experiences uh, as a father, becoming a father and also reflecting on his father, you know, after he passed away, that comes across in the work, like, really powerfully and uh, fundamentally kind of shifts the tone of the story at a certain point. Yeah, I was watching the Boruto movie astounded because it's a story of a guy who's really good at what he does, but what he does takes time away from his kids and he doesn't know what to do. Because he has to provide, but he loves his kids, and he kind of has to find a way between the two. And that's yeah. like that's the, that's the Kishimoto story. Like I think he said, like this is where this came from. Yeah, and I find that so compelling. And I, I think you had an amazing uh, perspective on this on an essay you wrote about Bleach on your I Am David Brothers blog uh, towards the end of the series, where you also uh, you wrote that you had fallen out of the series for a while, but when you came back to it, you noticed that Kubo's approach to things that changed in the series that he was like challenging himself as an artist and that there was like new things kind of to latch onto that showed the maturity of his craft and i think that you know maybe one of the reasons that a lot of these long-running shonen titles in particular like still resonate and have like the long-lasting impact and longevity they do is because the artist is not afraid to uh, challenge themselves to express new ideas and, you know, grow up with their audience in a way. Even if the characters themselves, you know, uh, they might not grow substantially in age. Like the themes and the, and the way that the story is told matures. Oh yeah. Like 22 is middle aged in manga as far as I can <laughs> tell. But, um, yeah, that Bleach essay, that was almost therapy on the page. 
I think if you do the same thing the same way for a very long period of time, you might as well just quit. Like there's no, mm-hmm. there's nothing there. Um, but if you push yourself, like excellence isn't something that you achieve. It's something you strive for. Like it's a goal in the distance, not necessarily something that you can, you know, like stamp on your book. Like this is excellent. It's like, I almost got there. I can improve here, here and here. And when I look at Bleach, um, and actually when, actually the whole big three, like Bleach, One Piece, Naruto, mm-hmm. the former big three of Shonen Jump. If you look at any random page from volume one of that series, then any random page from volume 70 of either of those series, um, cause I think Bleach ended at 72 or 74. Naruto yeah, was 74. in the seventies. They look like different comics. Like oh, it's yeah. amazing. Um, one piece got incredibly dense. Like Oda's storytelling just took off at such like a, an arc that it's, um, he went from having very simple backgrounds to just pages teeming with characters. Mm-hmm. Um, Naruto's fight choreography gets amazing as Kishimoto goes on. Like there's a point in Dragon Ball where I think, uh, Akira Toriyama figures out fights. Um, I want to yeah. say it's the, the Krillin and Goku fight in the original runway, like when they first battle each other at the, um, Tenkaichi Budokai, where he's like, yeah. Oh, that's how this works. And then mm. this series is different from there on out. And that's really saying something considering how a lot of Toriyama's movement is already like so great from the very beginning. Yeah. It was like if Michael Jordan figured out how to be even better than Michael Jordan, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, wait, I can dunk from the three point line. All right. Let's see something like that. And with Bleach, especially there is something about the vibe of Bleach that really appealed to me. It's, um, it felt very hip hop in a way, though. I think that Kuba was probably more pulling from like, pop and punk more than rap music that kind mm. of like if there was a gorillas comic kubo should draw it like yeah that's the only way i can explain yeah. the appeal of early bleach you know and as time went on like i was reading it and i was like okay this is okay but then i came back to i kept up with it in shonen jump and in the last arc um the uh thousand year blood war and i was looking at the pages and i was like man like this guy is doing something special here and I can't quite figure it out, but like, it's really, really working for me. Uh, he changed the way. Do you two know the phrase, um, spotting blacks in terms of making comics? Mm-mm. So essentially when you draw a comics page, like you don't color in all the black at the same time, you'll just like mark an X and then yeah, your assistant yeah, okay. or yeah, inker will fill that in. Kubo started doing that in a way to where you could have a page that was almost entirely black and it would be like soul chilling. Like just the effect yeah. would be amazing or he would do like the figures and white out. And you know, like I love looking at comics art, figuring out comics art. And suddenly like bleach went from a series that I was familiar with to a puzzle and a puzzle that I knew that I could solve. Hmm. And I love seeing Kubo, you know, switch his style up like that. Cause the original stuff, it had, you know, I think Shaman King kind of had like a similar vibe, like in terms of character proportions and that sort of thing. By the time you get to the end of bleach, like he's drawing full on adults like with you know like lanky bodies like chunky bodies like a wide variety of body types there's even a uh, a trans character in the last arc which is something i don't think he would have even come close to in the very beginning and it just became really really interesting both from a story perspective a craft perspective and also like in terms of like the context around the series the thousand year blood war arc is almost a victory lap because every character yeah. gets one last cool moment and then they're ushered off the stage mm. Now, I'm trying to remember, I, I fell off of Bleach, I think, like, before the full Brink arc ended. I couldn't, mm. I couldn't really, I don't know, I got, I kind of fell out of it reading weekly at that point, but, uh, David, you're really making me want to, like, go back and read all of Bleach. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's just so much in it that, 
it's just really enjoyable. Um, like if you know the characters, especially, I'm not sure, uh, how like someone knew, like they can just start with the last arc. I don't know about that. But like if you like Ichigo, if you like Chad and Orihime and Rukia, there's so much, like Rukia's older brother is finally like, Hey, I'm proud of you towards the end of the series. And I didn't expect mm-hmm. that to like have an effect on me, but it, it was great. Mm-hmm. Like she displays an all new ability and her older brother is like, that was good. You can bring it down slowly. Like, well done. I'm like, man, I've got feelings. Like, I got all kinds of emotions right now. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, Kubo does pay off on a lot of the character arcs and the themes he's built up throughout the series in that arc. And to me, it's really interesting to think back on Bleach and like think back on the experience while I was reading it on a weekly basis. I wasn't necessarily like getting all of that. But then when I think about it in retrospect, like, and have a different perspective on the series and go back to it and see what Kubo was doing, kind of the evolution and his thought process in the work, I find a whole new level of appreciation for it. And so, like, a lot of my feelings on series really change after they've ended and after I've had time to kind of reflect on it. Like, especially with Naruto and Bleach, because they were so long, it's such a big part of, like, my childhood years. And then now I can look back on it from much older perspective and see, oh, like, this is how Masashi Kishimoto and Tai Kubo grew up, and, and like, this is how they were thinking of their story, and this was where the payoff was, where I wasn't seeing it before. Yeah, I yeah. think that digestion period is so important. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And even with me personally, like, I kind of, I, I kind of grew up in a time where, like, I, I was in circles where it was just kind of normal to shit on Naruto and Bleach because that was just the thing people like to do on the internet or whatever. And, you know, I used to be kind of on that bandwagon when I was younger, but yeah, be, being kind of away from both of those series for, for as long as I have been and really kind of thinking about that kind of stuff in retrospect, thinking of back on both the series really, really make me want to go back and like reread those, see how I, how I would feel now as an adult. Uh, that's definitely something I really want to do on the podcast at some point. Uh, those yeah. are kind of goals of mine in particular. Because, I don't know, I, I just, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, I, I just find both those series really interesting in retrospect. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where, um, as you grow up, the series grows up alongside you because your experiences and perspectives change. Yeah. There have been things mm-hmm. that I loved as a kid where I grew up and watched them again, and I was like, oh, man, this is trash. Like, <laughs> like I can't do Thundercats anymore, and I was a diehard Thundercat as a oh. kid, you know? Mm-hmm. That's so interesting because I still love Thundercats. So, like, as a kid, I didn't like it. And mm. then I watched it, you know, uh, late high school, early college. And still now, when I go back to it, I'm like, yeah, this is fun. I like, <laughs> and I like it. I like the corniness of it. I like that there is a dated aspect to it, but there's also so many fun things that I like. Like, I love the loon attacks when they're yeah. introduced. <laughs> Those are great characters. I love uh, Slime and Volturo, all the mutants. I will say the Thunder Tank is still extremely awesome. Yeah. So it's fun fun to kind of go back and and see, like, some stuff that, you know, you didn't appreciate as a kid or you had an appreciation for as a kid and how your feelings have changed. Because there's a lot of fun surprises. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's good to go back to things just because there have been things I love that I came back like I came away with like, oh, like maybe that's not that good anymore. There's been things I didn't like that I ended up loving. Like in Glorious Bastards, the Tarantino movie, 
I saw it in the theater and was like, I don't get it. It's way too long. And also it seems kind of disrespectful to World War II. But then mm. I watched it on home video and I was like, oh, this makes a lot more sense now. Like I had time mm-hmm. to sit with it and kind of figure it out. And um, yeah. it's not my favorite Tarantino, but I really like a lot of the things he does in there. Mm-hmm. I think that's very important with art is to, to like really try and figure out what the artists are trying to say. Yeah. And like, cause you, you'll have an instant reaction to something just on a gut emotional level mm-hmm. and then piece from there, like why you felt the way you did. And then like kind of piece, like what the artist's intent was yeah. working your way back. I think is very fun to do. One of my favorite things to do is, um, like I don't read many reviews of anything just because you know, like I'll, I'll figure it out if it's good or bad myself, but I mm-hmm. like reading negative reviews of things that I like just to get the other yeah. perspective mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, they say like steel sharpened steel, like to butt their perspective up against mine and figure out like why I feel the way I do when they feel the way they do. And that just kind of deepens my understanding of everything. Hopefully mm-hmm. sometimes I'm just like, ah, that was a dumb opinion. But when it's good, you know, I'm like, okay, this, this person makes some really interesting points that I don't agree with, but I appreciate and accept. Yeah. Some, some negative reviews can be like really well thought out and kind of interesting, but then you have stuff like really dumb Amazon reviews or something. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like this, like the corner of this book was chipped one star. It's like, well, what was the book about? Like, what are you doing? I tried a volume of this manga called JoJo's Bizarre Adventure and it came and it was black and white for 90% of it (laughs) or something like that. My favorite are the ones that are like, uh, I bought this book, but I think they printed it backwards. Nothing makes any sense. Uh, It's like, well, you're reading it in the wrong direction. Like, please, please read the read the wrong way page. I mean, some of my favorite uh, reviews to read are those that are looking at a comic from a particular perspective and like kind of dissecting it from that angle. Like it's, even if it's a negative review, like and especially when it comes to subjects like representation, like you tweeted out earlier today, a great piece on a new X-Men comic that someone wrote that was like looking at the treatment of uh, trans trans misogyny yeah. in this comic. And I thought that was an incredibly fascinating read and also kind of gets to the heart of kind of how shallow, like, a, like attempts at representation that does not have, like, any thought behind it are. Like, attempts at, like, using, like, this common idea just for a shock value without any empathy. Yeah, the writer of the X-Men piece, I'm not sure how to pronounce their last name, but their first name's Nola, P-F-A-U. Um, mm-hmm. They're a good editor a good writer, a good editor. They work for womenwriteaboutcomics.com. And one of the biggest benefits to the internet to me is being exposed to perspectives I would have never seen before or mm-hmm. hadn't seen up until this point of time. Like, again, I'm from a small town in Georgia. I don't think I knew any trans people when I was a kid. And any queer people I knew were probably closeted, you know? And now mm-hmm. that I'm older, I've got, you know, I've got a bunch of trans friends. I've got queer friends. I've got friends from all over and it's really enriched my life like my day-to-day life but also in terms of reading about the the culture i consume getting their perspectives on it because you know like i kind of know how i feel like i more or less have that figured out but other people feel differently for equally valid reasons and i really appreciated their essay because it kind of it tied into something else i'd noticed about the x-men um as from like a black male perspective 
which is that if you get too close to the real life oppression the X-Men are based on, it stops being fun. Because mm-hmm. then you're like, oh, this happened in real life. Or even worse, like this has happened to me before. And that takes a lot of the joy out of things. But when the X-Men mm-hmm. has like that proper amount of distance where like being a mutant isn't a specific metaphor for any specific group. It's just more about being the other in a, what is it, like a world that hates and fears them that they are sworn to protect. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some really good like texture in there that can really feel positive or, you know, like kind of cathartic. But in this case, it was about essentially a gay bashing or trans bashing rather using specific terminology that, you know, trans men and women are subject to every day that they shouldn't be. Yeah. And it's sort of like, well, we see what you're going for, but like too real. Like sometimes if you just draw a hate crime, it just looks like a hate crime and not commentary on a hate crime. Yeah. And it doesn't become metaphor at that point. It's just the thing. And that's yeah. not fun to experience or to see shown because it's real pain that's being reflected there. But that's not really being commented on. It's just being shown. Yeah. I mean, at that point, is it even really, like, fiction, even? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, people are jerks about trigger warnings and things like that, but I think there is some value in there of kind of watching what you invoke, especially mm-hmm. if you're not a part of the group that whatever that action is invoked against. Uh, but I was at Image, there was this comic that came out called Divided States of America. And, like, I feel like if you work at a company, you shouldn't ever badmouth the company in real life. Like, you have to be on the team. So I just didn't say anything. But there was this big uh, controversy where the creator came up with this comics cover that featured a Pakistani man who was, um, well, I'm not going to go into detail, but a hate crime happened and it was on the cover of the book. And it was meant to show, like, how evil and bad the world this man has to live in. But if you look at the drawing, it's just a drawing of a hate crime. And people mm-hmm. were like, dude, like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And he's like, oh, it's commentary, it's satire. But like, if your satire just looks like the real thing, it's not satire. It's just the mm-hmm. thing. So there's like a special deafness that you need to apply to the situation. It's like satire if I beat you over the head with a sledgehammer. Yeah. Like if I punch you and I'm like, just kidding. Like, that's not a joke. That's just a punch. <laughs> just a prank, bro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, take a joke. It's like, yeah, I can take jokes, but like, your jokes have to make me laugh. They shouldn't make me feel bad. And so I yeah. think, like, that's one of those things I'm really grateful for the, to the internet, to the people on the internet. The internet sucks, but to the people on the internet for yeah. putting their voices out there. Cause talking about this stuff is tough. Mm-hmm. And you've been a huge proponent of having more voices out there to like express different viewpoints, to express different perspectives. And also you've been a big proponent of uh, having more representation behind the page, like more creator diversity. Yeah. And I was wondering how we can extend this conversation to manga, which is, you know, primarily drawn by Japanese creators. And there's not often a lot of people of color who are like making manga. There are some like a, the creator of Pipo Cho. Yeah, Felipe Smith. Yeah, but it is a rarity. But often, like, it's just in general in the media that we consume, we're still looking for kind of stuff that reflects our experiences and ourselves in the media that we read. Mm-hmm. Like, and, but sometimes we don't really often find, like, that kind of representation or the, the representation that is there is not really accurate to our experiences. 
So I'm kind of wondering your thoughts on that in the context of like being, you know, a person of color, an LGBTQ person, like as a fan of anime and manga, like how do we reconcile like our desire for uh, good representation and when a lot of popular works might not offer them to us? Um, it's tough with manga because like Japan is, um, and paraphrasing super hard here, but it's culturally homogenous to an extent that the United States, the United States is not. Mm -hmm. There are definitely a variety of ethnicities there, a variety of immigrants, but generally, like, Japan is predominantly ethnically Japanese, while America mm -hmm. is a much more melting pot, I guess is the uh, the old school phrase. Um, yeah. So I think the expectations for the two industries and the, the two art forms, even though they're parallel, they're, I mean, manga is comics, like, you just read mm -hmm. them in a different order, and sometimes they're not in color. But sometimes American comics aren't in color either, so that's okay. But the industries are different. So with Japanese books, I don't go, I don't expect as much racial diversity, for instance. Like, there's not a lot of really popular black, uh, manga characters, anime characters. There's a few, and a lot of them are really good. Sometimes they're stereotypes, sometimes they're drawn in a way that's extremely uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But it's nice when they nail it, when you get, like, the guy from Black Lagoon, or some of the characters in Naruto. Or, um, Chad from, uh, Bleach, who was, uh, mixed race, I believe. I want to say Brazilian yeah. and Japanese. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. that stuff is cool, but it's, it's sort of like icing on the cake. Like, mm -hmm. manga's going to be Japanese because that is what it is. Manga creators definitely do books with, uh, people of other ethnicities. There's a new, uh, series. I think it's from Katakawa, but I'm not sure. It's called Batuki, but it's essentially about, partially about capoeira, which is an Afro-Brazilian art form. And there are black characters in that who teach capoeira to a young Japanese girl, mm. uh, which is awesome. It's not translated, sadly. I've got a couple of the Tankoban that I've been flipping through, and there's uh, free previews on the Japanese site online. Mm, it sounds interesting. And videos on YouTube. Yeah, it's really cool. Batuki, B-A-T-U-Q-U-E. Uh, those books exist. There's a whole book about uh, Robert Johnson, the bluesman who sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads for talent by the person who did prison school and it's amazing and incredibly well drawn hmm. and like the complete opposite of prison school you know <laughs> so those books exist but i think that fundamentally we have to support them we don't have to support them that's not the phrasing i want if it's something you're into you have to buy it mm -hmm. yeah to show people that you want more of it like i don't think that you should ever buy something just because there's someone in it that looks like you you should buy it because you like it Mm -hmm. And because there's someone in it that looks like you, you know? Mm -hmm. I agree. And yeah. there's, I don't know, it's very tough. Because um, I would obviously love to see more black or brown characters in manga, but it's also like the Japanese creators are actually telling their truth. Like, this is what the country is like mm -hmm. on a certain, I mean, you know, there's not ninjas and stuff running around, but culturally, like, this is similar to what it is in real life. So I can't really fault them for that the way I do American comics companies who kind of just ignore the diversity in the room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where they're like, oh, well, you know, diversity doesn't sell. Yeah. Or like, hey, we've got one book. We've got a black book that comes out in February for Black History Month. We've got a book with Asian people that comes out in May for Asian Pacific Islander Month. <laughs> and we've got a Women's History Month book, too. I'm like, that sucks. Like, just make those books year round, please. Yeah, exactly. And I think fundamentally, the diversity conversation is about normalcy. 
Like I would assume the lives that say us three live are filled with a wide variety of people, whether online mm-hmm. or in real life. Mm-hmm. And that might not be reflected in, you know, like a Spider-Man comic or something. But if it was reflected in a Spider-Man comic, I think that would make the comics better. And I think I push for diversity behind the page more than on the page because bringing in those voices is nothing but a bonus, like a net benefit. Mm-hmm. Because like if I have four writers and four artists or four writers uh, that are men and four writers that are women, it's not like a men write like this, women write like this thing. Though there is definitely a bit of that with men in the comics industry. It's more you've got eight people with eight completely different experiences. Yeah. So what are they going to bring to the X-Men that like a bunch of dudes who have been doing the X-Men for years haven't brought to the X-Men? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So many different perspectives coalescing gives like just a broader sense of what the world is actually like. Yeah. And one of my favorite writers, and also she's, I worked with her a little bit at Image. She's a really nice person. Marjorie Liu. She does, uh, Monstrous with Sana Takeda right now. That's really good. It is mostly about like the effects of war on, you know, children and women in this society that's full of magical creatures. But she did a series called X23 at Marvel. And before she got there, X23 was basically young, sexy female Wolverine. Hmm. And she, you know, she had like, I think one claw in her feet and two claws on her hands. And that was like her big difference. But she'd been like abused as a sex worker and then like put in all these weird, bad situations. And then Marjorie got hold of the character and was like, let's find the humanity in this person first and then do all that violent stuff second. So she had like Gambit as her mentor because like Gambit's a thief. He's been through a lot of stuff. He's like, look, good guys, bad guys, don't worry about that. You need to find you. You need to be true to yourself. And that was something, like, I've been reading X-Men since I was a kid, but I was reading these. I was like, man, did she really just make me like someone's weird fetish Wolverine character? (laughs) And she did. Like, she made the character human. You know, she would babysit the Fantastic Four's kids. She would hang out with Jubilee, who is hands down the best X-Men in my book. And that all came from her perspective. She was like, I don't just want to write a book about a character that just makes guys uh, excited. Like, that's boring. We've got dozens of those. Mm -hmm. I want to write a book about a young girl trying to find her way and figuring out what her nature is because she was, you know, basically raised to be a killer. But it's like, what do you do when that's all you know? But that's not what you want to do anymore. Mm -hmm. Which maybe makes it the reverse of we never learn. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I think that's what we really want when we're looking for representations that we want characters who are people and we want, them to feel like people, not like caricatures, not like ideas that someone who has never met or has like just this like very narrow idea of what a person is like is. That's Mm -hmm. what we want. Like, please save me from people doing black slang they made up in comic books because it is always (laughs) the worst. (laughs) (laughs) But then when you get a character like, um, like it, it drives me nuts that I haven't checked recently, but for like the first at least 30 years of Storm's life, no black woman ever wrote her. Wow. Wow. Like whether African or um, black American or otherwise. And that just seems like irresponsible almost. Yeah. Because it's not that black women would do it better or differently by default, but like that's a perspective that that character espouses theoretically. Mm. It is not reflected at all behind the page. Like even with Black Panther... Up until the Tanahasi Coates run, I could count the number of black people who actually wrote the series on half of a hand. 
Wow. And like two of those were the same dude, but like decades <laughs> apart. And that's not what we need. That's not what we want in 2019. Like we've got so many more voices now. Twitter has really done a lot to kind of democratize just like who gets to have a platform. And there's been a bunch of really bad stuff on Twitter as well, obviously, because there's Nazis on Twitter, but there's us too. And we all have something to say. So it's better that we all kind of get in and be like, no, like as a Chinese American person, here's how I feel about Jubilee. As a person from New Orleans, here's how I feel about Gambit. As a guy whose dad died in the coal mine, here's how I feel about Sam Guthrie, Cannonball. Like, I want to read those stories because that sounds interesting. That sounds real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not that diversity on the page is bad. It's just, it's the difference between a pantomime with like a, a puppet and an actual dance. Yeah. Like the puppet can still be really good. You might really like it, but then you see the real thing and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, no, I need this too. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really awesome that we live in an age where there's so many more platforms for content creators and for fans to like express their opinions, share art and kind of promote different perspectives from, you know, lived experiences. And I think that's really cool also, like, in terms of anime manga fandom, because we can have international creators, creators from outside Japan, go into the industry and kind of make anime from an outside perspective. Like, LaShawn Thomas, he makes anime. Uh, yeah. He's making a new series for Netflix, which is about Yasuke, a black retainer uh, who served for Oda Nobunaga. And it's like, I'm really excited for that story, but I'm always excited for the work he does. Like, he makes anime from a yeah. black perspective. And if your listeners haven't heard of Yasuke, uh, Y-A-S-U-K-E, Google him. The story's amazing. It's really good. Apparently, there's going to be a live-action movie as well featuring Common, which I'm Whoa. much less excited about than the LaShawn <laughs> Thomas version. But, yeah, like, that's it exactly, like... The world is getting increasingly global. Like the internet has done a really good job or bad job, depending on your point of view, of breaking down a lot of these barriers between our countries. Like I love basketball and I follow a lot of basketball people on Twitter who are from Japan. Like they tweet in Japanese, you know, I have to translate, but like I want to know what they want to say and how I can somehow subscribe to the Japanese basketball league just because it seems cool and it's there. So why not? Mm hmm. Yeah, I think digital comics is just truly revolutionized, like how many people can have the opportunity to share, to make and share comics. Like, I think yeah. that, you know, that has truly changed the game. And I was wondering just your thoughts on, you know, I think digital comics are just an amazing place right now, but what about the platforms themselves? Like, where do you think that we're excelling right now? And what do you think could be improved on in the future? Like, where does digital comics go from here? It's, um, it's interesting. I'm, I mostly read digitally now because the Bay Area is incredibly expensive and I only have so much space for books anymore. But, um, I read most of mine on the Kindle. I or actually the Kindle app on iPad. Uh, because it's like the perfect size for reading manga if you turn it horizontal and it's a good size for reading American comics if it's, for, if it's, uh, portrait. And I think that's probably one of the cleanest experiences out right now. It has, there's some things that could be improved in terms of like user experience. Um, like I love that the Viz app will let you go to the next volume as soon as you finish the volume you just read. Like mm -hmm. that's like a crucial feature for discoverability and even just like sitting down and reading, you know, like a thousand pages of manga in a weekend. But 
I think we mostly just need to let people know that it exists. Like the price of the readers have to come down so they can, like we've all got phones, but not everyone likes reading comics on their phone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, like if we had like a PSP or a Game Boy type thing for digital comics, like something that could change the game like those systems did, I think that would be a great boon. But I think in the end, it's going to come down to pricing more than anything else because like American comics are super expensive digitally compared to manga. There's a new series called um, Savage Avengers, which is like Conan, the Barbarian, Wolverine, Venom, and the Punisher on an Avengers team, which sounds just dumb enough to work. You know, it's one of those. <laughs> but the first issue is $5. But a single volume of Grappler Baki is four ninety nine, mm-hmm. And it just doesn't compare, you know? Yep. And I think that's, I think that's hurting the industry on both sides in terms of American comics and manga, because it's all the same to the consumer. Like they're all in the same section on Amazon, same mm-hmm. section in the bookstore. And it just makes, it takes it from an impulse purchase to something you got to stop and think about. Yeah. But my hope is that as prices sort of, we find the right spot. Like I think manga pricing is in a really good place right now. It ranges from usually like five bucks to uh ten ninety nine, maybe 15 for like the super deluxe, like extra long things. Like I think, the JoJo's volumes were like 10 or something like that. I think that's mm-hmm. like right on target. Like it feels comfortable. It's less than the print price, which is really important for digital books. And it's cheap enough, but you get so many pages that it feels like an impulse purchase. Like there have been series that I just sat and read like eight volumes in a row because it was like $3 on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Even when like they were just so-so or like I wasn't really feeling it. I was like, you know what? It's cheap enough. I'm liking this. I like this enough to pay $3 for it. I would not pay for it. You know, one of those. Right. But just the fact that you can get onto Gumroad or Tapas or like Line Webtoon and put your comic out and make money or, you know, just like a regular webcomic. I think that's a really good sign for the future in terms of both the types of stories we get to tell and also kind of who gets to tell those stories. Because in the past, Mm -hmm. like if if you wanted a job at Marvel Comics, actually, if you want a job at Marvel Comics now. You either have to be really good or know somebody who knows somebody. But mm-hmm. if you want to put out your story that's like an epic fantasy, like buy a domain, get a WordPress or whatever like the standard is now, and just do it. Mm-hmm. Like the money's not going to be the same, but the control you get in exchange is off the charts. You can do it whatever you want with your property, with your creativity. Definitely. I love that there are more opportunities now to just share your work and then it's just so many people get jobs in the animation and comic industries just from sharing their art online on their Tumblrs and Twitter and stuff. Yeah. I mean, people don't, I don't think people realize the extent to which editors watch that kind of thing. In part, like for me personally, I just like looking at cool art. Um, I yeah. follow uh, AIC and anime on Twitter, who's always retweeting like random sketches from Japanese, you know, uh, artists and things like that. I'm like, man, that looks good. That's a really good drawing of Bulma. That's a cool Doro and Doro <laughs> homage. Just seeing that stuff is nice. But then when you see a piece, you're like, oh, this person lives in my city. I wonder if they would like to collaborate on something. Like that can change the game. Mm-hmm. It can actually, actually it can honestly change your life. Like there have been people who get picked up on Twitter. Um, a friend of mine, Andy Corey, he works at DC Comics now. He used to run Best Art Ever at Comics Alliance. And it was a spot where he would just find a bunch of sketches of artists and he would just do this huge long post every Friday of the best art ever. And once he got hired at DC, he was like, I need you, you, and you, and you to do these books for me. 
And that's just one person, you know? Definitely. So, yeah, like, put your stuff out there. Like, show us what you got. Because we've seen what's on the shelves already. Like, we want to know what's next. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that Viz is also going to be offering opportunities to uh, up-and-coming creators who want to explicitly draw manga with the Viz Originals imprint. So I'm very curious to see what will come out of those. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm really excited. Curious to see where it's going to go. I think we're just starting portfolio reviews at maybe AX or San Diego, one of those shows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we'll be, if you see us at Comic-Con, like get on our list, like come, come talk to us, show us what you got. Mm -hmm. And we'll definitely leave a link to where you can sign up for portfolio reviews in the description. Yeah, that would be awesome. Mm -hmm. And I think we could just go on talking about (laughs) comics and just our feelings on them, like where we think they're going. But I think we should dovetail into the Twitter question now because so many people reached out with some really awesome questions. Yeah. But I think before we do that, I just want to ask you, what is your favorite manga? What are your favorite manga? Um, Of all time or like currently? Uh, you can take it both Either ways. or? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I think the one I look forward to the most right now is Ajin Demihuman from Kodansha. Mm-hmm. Just because, like I was saying earlier, there's just something about it that clicks for me. And the way the creator chooses to tell the story is really fascinating. Um, he'll often do like a half chapter, like chapter 55.5, that like sets up like, oh, here's a character that's going to come in chapter 56. Mm. And there was one that was really good where they introduced like this paramilitary team. You're like, oh, these guys are going to come and try to kill the main characters. But then they arrive and they're on the same side as the main characters. And it was just like a big, like, oh man, like, this is not what I expected moment. Like, it delivers those really well. In addition to having, like, fantastic fight choreography. How far are you on Ajin? Uh, I'm caught up. I read it both on the Crunchyroll app, like, uh, monthly, mm-hmm. and I also buy the, uh, volumes as they come out. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm in the bag for that one. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. But I also, like, I like, um, it's actually harder to read Viz stuff now that I'm at Viz because it's almost, uh, like, you kind of want to leave work at work, so I tend to catch hmm. up on Viz stuff in chunks. And I really like Sleepy Princess and the Demon Castle. Oh, mm. yeah. That's a fun one. Yeah, it's just so... It's kind of like We Never Learn in that it has, like, just a really good core gimmick, which is that, like, this princess is a terror. Like, the damsel in distress is, like, the one causing the distress for the demons that captured her. And just the jokes are really solid. What else have I been reading lately? I got Actually, I got really into prison school. Because mm. it feels like a porn comic made by someone who wants people to not watch porn. <laughs> like, it's like the, it's, I don't find it sexy at all because it's too sexy, you know? Mm-hmm. I think I, I think I understand, yeah. Like, you know, in old TV shows when, like, a kid gets caught smoking cigarettes and their parents make them smoke a box of cigarettes? This is the <laughs> box of cigarettes for, like, fan service manga. But, like, the artistry is so good. The jokes are just so on point, like. And the volumes are cheap. Like, you know, I buy them on Kindle. They're like 4 or $5 or something like that. Mm, wow. Yeah. Um, I really like those. I'm really happy that World Trigger is back in Shonen Jump because that was yeah. a big favorite of mine uh, when that was originally running. Mm. Because it's kind of, it's like what happens when a war, war comic meets a sports comic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I love both those genres. So that, that really works out for me. Yeah, there's really nothing else like it. Yeah, just like a weird mix of stuff like that. I love Yona of the Dawn. Um, that's a Viz book that I try to keep up with pretty regularly. Cause it's essentially like a princess is living like the life of her dreams, like her childhood friend she's in love with. 
until he comes to town, kills her dad, and steals her kingdom. And then she has to go on the run and like kind of build up a posse of hot guys to help her take her kingdom back. Mm-hmm. And it's good. Like, it's really good. Mm. I'm, I'm looking yeah. forward to reading that soon since we're, uh, we're actually going to be talking about that on the show in the next couple of months. So, yeah, it's, I mean, even in the office, there's like a little core of people who are like, they go to the editor of the series, like, hey, can I get a volume before it comes <laughs> out? Like, can you hook me up? <laughs> nice. Yeah. I read, I honestly, I read so many comics. It's almost not funny. Cause, you know, I don't, I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't drink. I don't drink coffee. So all that Starbucks money just goes to, <laughs> goes to, uh, you know, like Kadansha, Shueisha, Sogakan, <laughs> everyone else. Yeah. Oh, my favorite right now, though, I have to mention is, um, City from Vertical Comics by oh, yeah. Keiichi uh, Aroi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the guy who did Nichijo. Mm-hmm. And City is basically Nichijo with like half of a plot. Interesting. And the jokes off the charts. Like it's so good. Uh, there's five volumes out right now, and honestly, you could pick it up in the middle and, like, just get it right there. Mm. Like, it's just so, so well made. Excellent. Yeah. I really enjoy the comedy Nichijo, so I definitely gotta give City a try sometime, too. Oh, man, Nichijo is so good. <laughs> like, I've got the anime, I've got all the volumes of the manga. There yep. was, like, the weird, what, the Helvetica Standard books yeah, that yeah. came out? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That was great. Yeah. But as far as some stuff that you've been a fan of for a long time, I know that you're a big fan of Inoue Takahiko's works. Oh, yeah. Vagabond is basically the greatest self-help book I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, his work, like, Inoue is so, he's such an artist, like, capital A artist, to where even if he doesn't make another, like, chapter or page of Vagabond, I'm like, what we have is sufficient. Like, thank you for this gift. Mm-hmm. But obviously, I want to see more. But like, it, I just get so much out of it every time I reread it. Yeah, and it's just the story, you know, of Miyamoto Musashi uh, becoming Musashi. But it's a story of an artist learning how to use his tools. It's a story of a man, you know, like quelling the beast inside of him and actually becoming civilized. It's a story of someone growing up and realizing, like, oh, invincible under the heavens is not a real thing. Like every time you climb a mountain, there's a higher one off in the distance that you also have to climb. So life is just struggle and you have to accept that. But then it's also a comic where someone walks down off a mountain and fights 70 dudes and lives to tell the tale. Yeah. There's just so much about it where I'm like, ah, yes, I need more of this. The Yoshioka arc, that is really uh, freaking great. The sheer desperation in that fight as it, as it goes on and Masashi is kind of He's really pushing himself to the brink of exhaustion. It's just yeah. such sheer. I never read And then he gets infected fight. after that from his wounds. And yeah. Man. Even when he fights, um, was it Denichiro? Something like that. Den yeah. uh, Yoshioka. At the beginning of the duel where they're fighting and he forgets to draw his sword, but he still kind of intimidates his opponent just from sheer yeah. presence and energy. Like that is why comic books were invented. Oh, yeah. That was such a moment when he cuts him down. Yeah. Actually, Vagabond is the one book where I actually had to take a break from writing about comics because I read that and I was like, what's going to be better than this? Like, what am I doing? Like, it made me question my life. And it was because it was so good. You just stopped reading comics afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. It was honestly like two weeks before I wrote about comics and read anything other than Vagabond. (laughs) 
I mean, maybe it's a good thing that Inoue is taking his time returning to the series because otherwise yeah. he would just ruin comics for, for us. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and his work is so varied. Like, I have his art book where uh, he studies all these works by um, the Spanish artist uh, Gaudí or Real, which is about wheelchair basketball or Slam Dunk, yeah. the series that he made his name on. I even have uh, Buzzer Beater, a series he did for ESPN's website in the 90s, full color about space basketball. Oh, yeah. I keep forgetting that exists, and I'm reminded every once in a while that I need to read it. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's so... <laughs> It's just like he, there's something about, like he's into basketball and sword fights. And those are two of my favorite things. Mm-hmm. Now, only he could combine those both together into one thing. I don't know if we'd be able to handle it. A <laughs> uh, real vagabond? Uh, game over, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's the title of his next series, Game Over. Yeah. <laughs> like candy cat, swordsman in wheelchairs, uh, playing basketball. <laughs> Oh man, I would die. Especially if like the the final boss in the tournament were like a team of shinobi who cheated their way to the finals. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. He's got to call me. I've got uh, so many ideas for him. <laughs> yeah, but I think this is a good transition into our Twitter questions uh, because we have one here from Caleb Russell who asks, "What are some of the most memorable moments of Agabond for you, and why?" Oh, definitely the Yoshioka fight, but also. The moment when he realizes that Invincible Under the Heavens is fake, and there's like the little mm. ghost of his uh, mentors kind of taunting him. Mm. I really appreciate that. But lately, uh, the last time I reread it, I think the last two or three volumes that have come out have basically been about Musashi as a farmer. Yeah. Kind of reconnecting with his humanity. And it's like, it's the story of a guy who's the greatest swordsman who ever lived. And there's like 800 pages about digging ditches in the middle of it. Like, there's something yeah. so good about that. I hmm. love that part of the story so much. And when he's like feeling the dirt and tasting it, trying to understand, that's really good. Yeah. It's just a whole new challenge for him that he can't solve with a sword. Yeah. And that's totally, that kind of gets back to my thing about if you do the same thing the same way forever, like you should just stop. Like Musashi's like, I've got the sword down. How do I be a human being? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. That's great. I like. The build-up with Sasaki Kojiro, I think it's yeah. it's a very slow burn, but when they shift the focus to him for a few volumes, that was killer. And just the yeah. way that his deafness affected his life, the way like his swordsmanship is beautiful, even the way people are like, ah, who's this pretty boy? And then they get completely like wiped out because this pretty boy is really good with the sword. Just all of that is great. Ah. <sighs> Yeah, geez, I need to reread Ragamon. <laughs> when I caught up to it, it was like the last, the most recent volume came out way back in 2015. There hasn't been more since. And yeah. I, it's, I got it. Yeah, man, I love, I really caught up at Inoue's works like right when they were, they went on their hiatus. And now I got it like, man, I, I have to revisit them from the ground <laughs> up. But there's still so much that sticks with me. Like uh, the fight with... Uh, I forget the name of the guy who who had, like, the spear or pole, but it was, like, very early on in the series. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because he comes back later as, um... Or no, he's the younger Yoshioka brother, I think? No, it's a different guy. It's not... He's okay. not related to the Yoshiokas, but it was an early story, and that was an interesting fight, because Fusashi had to fight an opponent with an untraditional weapon. Uh, there's another... Yeah, there's another character he fought early on, but then he came back with, like, this... The sickle and chain kind yeah, of thing that I he had to that fight. fight too. That's yeah, that's an incredible <laughs> fight. And even just the fact that he learned the sickle and chain from the young lady mm-hmm. who's just waiting to get a chance to kill him. 
but they have like this weird kind relationship too. Yeah, Vagabond, it's it's basically as good as uh, Akira for me. Like I can't get enough. Most definitely. Inoue is a master. Yeah. <laughs> but to go on to another question, since you mentioned before that you don't read Viz manga as much uh, at home anymore because you like to separate like work uh, from like recre- home recreational time. Like, there's a question here from Daphna who asked you read comics, manga for fun as much as you did before it became your career. Uh, even more so. Mm. Like, even with uh, only like catching up on Viz stuff in chunks instead of like uh, weekly, like I used to. So the Kindle app has this thing where it'll tell you how many days in a row that you've read Kindle books. And at one point, I was like at eight months of days or something ridiculous <laughs> like that. Um, even just this week, like I picked up. Uh, City Volume 5 and a couple other books came out. Fire Force 15 came out. There's a, there's a serialization called Dead Mount Death Play that I think either Yin or Kodansha does that I kind of like. Like, I'm pretty much always reading comics in some way, shape, or form, but it kind of goes in bursts where I'll, where I'll read a bunch of, like, manga in a chunk. Then, like, I'll catch up on a bunch of Viz stuff, like, for a couple of weeks. Then I'll switch to American comics for a little bit. Then I'll switch to novels because I feel guilty about only reading books with pictures. And then I'll come back to manga. You know, it's just always like a, a churn. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's just, um, I just love comics. Like, there's so much good stuff there. Even the Viz stuff that I work on. Like, I enjoy reading JoJo's while I proof it, you know? That's awesome. Yeah, and it's rare in a creative field or any kind of career, really, to have uh, that kind of blessing. So I'm really, I'm really grateful for where I'm at. Yeah, I mean... To be able to work in comics and really love comics and just spend your day just reading and helping create comics is just so amazing. Yeah, definitely. But that also leads to Daphne's other question, which is, has the transition from journalism to editing affected how you consume and engage with material than you did before? A hundred percent. And this mm-hmm. is, I, th- I think this is probably true of any industry, but it's just more uh, pointed in publishing because so much of what we see in real life, like derives from publishing, even you know, like bus station advertisements. Uh, I can spot an image that's not print resolution from like a mile away now, <laughs> and it's really distracting. When you see a poster and it's blurry, you're like, ah, what are you people doing? Why did you, you know, print this JPEG at eight feet tall or something like that? But in terms of the actual reading of comics itself, I notice different things now. Like, I notice when some letterers use kind of like a viz style on non-viz books, or not style, viz approach. Like, there's like fonts we use, um, like flashback formatting, stylistic things like that, Hmm. that sometimes pop up in other companies, which is totally fine. It's not like a knock or anything like that. It's just like, oh, like, this is something that's becoming standard. And it's Mm -hmm. something that no one would notice if they didn't work in publishing, you know? (laughs) Or even like the way books are trimmed and safety and that kind of thing. It basically, it just introduced a whole bunch of more details for me to pay attention to, for better or for worse. But generally, for better, it really kind of, it's fun when you can see the seams of something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so being a critic kind of taught me how to read comics. Working at Image taught me how to make comics. And working at Viz is teaching me how to construct comics. If, like, those distinctions make sense between, like, making and constructing. Kind of yeah. from the ground up versus finishing. Yeah. And so even in translation... Like, I hate to see it can't be helped because that's such like a lazy, it's just lazy. Like, there's so many other ways, better ways, like natural ways to phrase like Shogunai or Shikaze Ganai. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the go-to. Yeah, it, like, it's just too easy. 
mm-hmm. when you can do really fun things like, well, not much we can do about that. Like that's totally valid and it's human sounding, you know, you don't sound like an anime character. I've really learned a lot about translation since I started here at Viz and that's been kind of an interesting wake up call or not wake up call, but just another interesting thing to pay attention to in terms of like, sometimes I'll read a sentence. I'll go like, Oh, I kind of can figure out what the sentence would be in Japanese. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether on purpose or because it wasn't like fully localized, like it still has kind of like some funky grammar in there or something like that. But mostly mm-hmm. like all these details just make me appreciate the books more because I can see the different approaches different companies use like for the lettering or their retouch or even how they translate things. And they're all trying to get to the same goal, which is find people who like manga, give them this book because they like manga. Mm-hmm. And there's just, you know, like differences of opinion, different approaches, and all of it's valid. And seeing kind of that spectrum, that diversity of craft, but singularity of intent is really fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. It's like you've been in the kitchen and seeing how the, all the ingredients come together to make like just this really delicious dessert or cake. And so yeah. where before, like you appreciated the taste of the cake and crit- could critique the taste. Now you know, like how it's all made and then where it all comes from. Yeah. Like some people make hard boiled eggs. Some people make omelets. Yeah. And I mean, personally, I don't like hard boiled eggs. So this is a bad <laughs> comparison, but, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like both of those are valid, delicious choices and they all serve different, uh, different purposes. So like for some books, you know, they might have like, we never learned for instance, has like senpai. Uh, we use that in the phrase in sensei. And uh, I don't do any of that in JoJo's because I, because we never learned as like a very specific kind of type of story. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like JoJo's, I want it to be as natural and easygoing as possible. And those are very easy terms to translate. Like sensei, literally, it's just teacher. Like it's not special. It's just a word. Senpai, you know, there's like a hierarchy in there, but that hierarchy is expressed in different ways in English that you can still put into the text. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like how you wouldn't, if you wanted to know the time, there are two people standing in front of you, one uh, older with gray hair, one like obviously younger in sunglasses. Which one are you going to say, hey, bro, what time is it to? The younger looking person, because you would know to respect the older looking person. You'd say, hey, excuse me, what time is it? Do you have the time? Unless the old guy is like super hip. Yeah, actually <laughs> in the Bay Area, you'd never know. He might try to sell you acid or something. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, like, there's so many, so many cool things you can do with translation and still keeping the the truth of the translation, not, you know, not like Americanizing in this, in that sense, in the negative sense, mm-hmm. but just making it feel natural and being able to notice that kind of thing as I read more and more and I see where people go, like, some manga series are aimed at otaku, others are mm-hmm. aimed at, you know, like, bookstore readers. And so the expectation of the execution is totally different. And being at Viz is sort of a crash course in learning that because I have, I have so many different series in art books that are aimed at completely different audiences that I kind of need to be fluent in all of it. Mm-hmm. Like right now I've got a Transformers art book I'm working on. And last year I did an Evangelion and Dragon Quest art book. And those are all very different series and you can't use the same language for all of them. You can't speak to the fans the same way. Right. Yeah. And- I just, I like knowing things and uh, going from like critic to staff in American comics to staff in Japanese comics has been really fun. Yeah, it sounds like you really increase your knowledge set with each step along the journey. Yeah, and even adding uh, learning Japanese into the mix, like I don't 
speak Japanese. I'm not going to be there for a very long time, but I know enough to ask questions now to be like, Oh, when you like translated this this way, it's a little literal. Can you like loosen it up a little bit? It feels kind of stiff or like, can you make it more stiff because we want this character to be a certain type of character? And that has been, I basically spend a lot of time sounding out Japanese words at work, kind of like getting used to reading it. Mm -hmm. And it really helps with the editing because it's more. I can do research on my own without depending on someone else or a coworker to tell me like, oh, this is what this means. It's a whole other skill set that you can apply to just your daily tasks and in your daily life. Yeah. And as an editor, it's really, it helps you identify some of your own weaknesses or habits. Like if you just always accept the translation of something, something as this thing. Like that might not always be appropriate, but once you realize like, oh, something, something means this and has these connotations in Japanese and it's mostly used by like these types of people, then you're like, oh, we have those kinds of words in English too. So we can kind of mix and match a little bit and get to the truth of the, the truth of the character. Mm -hmm. It also probably makes you really learn like a better grasp of like English grammar or like English like oh, uh, yeah. dialects and colloquies and the way people speak to each other and the way people use words. Yeah, definitely. And I think that applies to uh, Daphne's last question, which is, did they use affected correctly in their first question? <laughs> yes, Daphne did. So uh, the way I remember it is that an effect is an emotion mm -hmm. and an uh, affect is a thing that happens. Mm -hmm. And... She killed it. Uh, Daphne actually edits books for Boom Studios, but effect and affect is one of those things I think that all editors and writers share where they're like, yeah. <laughs> I think I got the right one, but I'm not sure. Like for how farther and further, I mean, different things. Like one is uh, distance. The other is like metaphorical distance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, well done, Daphne. Good questions. Way to use affected. She's a good editor. That's and awesome. she would probably encourage you to uh, watch The Terror on AMC, which was really good. Well, I have to check it out. It's really grim, but it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> I guess moving on to the next set of questions, uh, we have one from Marisa Louise who asks, you know, you've had a long career in comics, so how do you stay motivated and overcome obstacles? Um, my The closest thing I have to a motto in life is um, some things matter, but most things don't. Mm -hmm. And like one thing that you'll never see me doing is fighting with somebody about scanlations on Twitter. Because I already know where I stand, and, like, I don't need to have that conversation. So, yeah. like, I just cut that whole stress out of my life, and it made my life better. It's great. But mostly, like, the some things matter, some most things don't is about prioritizing and just looking at your life with real eyes. Like, why are you doing this? Is it just because of ego? Because if it's just because of ego, like, you might feel a little better, but does it actually enrich your life, or does it just make you, like, feel like you're better than somebody else or, you know, something like that? Like you're trying to win internet points. Yeah, like you're doing mm -hmm. it for clout, you know? And that's no... There are definitely... I'm sure there are things that I do for that reason that I can't think of because I'm inside my own head. But I try to make sure that anything I do online is either substantive or, like, something that will make me laugh in the future. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> like, I, was, I mentioned, you know, my whole internet presence is based around my name. But I keep finding things that I do that are almost like time bombs of comedy that I find after I forget that I did them. Like my my Twitter header, which I never see because I'm always on like the main screen or in the app, is a Popeyes wrapper that I photographed in Portland because I love Popeyes and just made it my header. 
for no reason. <laughs> and this has gone so far that I have friends who will text me. They're like, hey, I just got Popeyes, dude. And I'm like, all right, I've got a brand. And that brand is eating Popeyes. Things like that. Like, you need to, I believe that you have to kind of, you can impose your will on your environment to an extent. And I think it's important to do that in a way that doesn't necessarily hurt other people, but still makes your life better. And there's a lot of things, you know, like there's a comics hate group that thinks I'm ruining Marvel comics and manga somehow, even though I'm pretty sure Marvel doesn't like me at all. Hmm. And I could spend, you know, like days trying to refute them, days trying to be like, no, here's what I do. Here's why it's not bad. I'm not going to somehow remove fan service from manga because I'm pretty sure that would get me fired. But it's pointless because I don't know those guys. I don't know them in real life. They're not going to come to Oakland to have a conversation with me about, like, why did you not use the F word in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure? Like, that's not going to happen. Why didn't you do the thing that the scanlation did? <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> and there are definitely people who have it much worse. Like, Comicsgate, I think, is honestly a genuine problem, and yeah. I hate them. Yeah. But I try not to dedicate too much brain power to them, just because I've got better things to do with my life. Mm -hmm. I've got friends and shonen manga to cry over <laughs> but yeah it's just all about finding like find your comfort zone find the thing find what you're willing to put up with find what you love find what you're not willing to take and just mm -hmm. stick to it like don't be a jerk about it if you can help it and if you're going to be a jerk be intentional about being a jerk don't just be you know like a lazy like just throwing out insults just for the the fun of it like mm -hmm. be very pointed in your criticism mm -hmm. do what you love and spread love yeah, as best you can. Mm -hmm. Which isn't to say that I haven't checked people online when they needed checking, but I try <laughs> to, I try to keep that to video games nowadays. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, uh, I think, yeah, video games yeah, definitely deserve some uh, shade thrown at them sometimes. Yeah. But uh, Marissa also asked, "Why is so? I'm a spider. So what? So good." So this is Marissa being uh, very self-serving because she recommended this manga to me ages ago. And I finally <laughs> read it and I was like, dang, this is really good. And it's really good for almost the exact same reason that Sleepy Princess and the Demon Castle is good. Because it's kind of a video game riff where it's one of those stories where someone dies and is reincarnated in, a, in another world. This time it's like a schoolgirl's reincarnated as a spider hmm. in a dungeon full of like S-rank level monsters. So she's just running for her life and just trying to get better and level up. And she's just getting, she's getting all these like weird new powers. She gets like evil magic. Every time she uses it, she gets like a new level up. She doesn't know what it means yet. And there's like weird, like evil machinations going on in the background. And I think it's so good because like Sleepy Princess, it has a really good joke at its core, which is how is this spider going to beat this dragon? Cause it can't just bite it, you know, right. but it can do like a, uh, like the upside down star with its legs and cast a <laughs> spell at it. And you know, drop it into a hole or something like that. Yeah, it's just really charming. <laughs> it's a refreshing take on kind of like an isekai story. Like you're, you're yeah. this creature that you start out kind of weak, but you have unique skills and then you find a way to kind of level up and then kind of go on this adventure and fight like dragons and stuff. Yeah. And just the sense of humor, the perspective is another one where it's really like a lot of it's um, internal dialogue, like her internal thoughts. And just, it's almost like, what if Daria was in an anime? <laughs> <laughs> that's a, oh, that's just an instant sell right there. Yeah. 
Yeah, the art's good, the story's good. I mean, that makes for a good comic to me. Mm-hmm. Now we have a question about JoJo's from Bren Bren, who asks, could we possibly see Mark McMurray use more fonts on JoJo in the future? Because they noticed in the first part four volume, there's a new handwritten looking font used in a couple spots, and they think that some variation, like a Japanese version, would be great, especially with stand cries. Uh, that's a good question. It's something, I think if there are too many fonts in use on a series, it leads to kind of visual cacophony. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to stay away from that as much as I can. I think that lettering at its best is invisible. It's something you take in, but you don't necessarily notice. It's almost you know, like air, kind of. Like, you got to have air, but you don't, how right. often do you think about breathing? So I don't, I can't promise there will be more fonts, but like the new handwritten font is just the, um, it's the aside font that we use in other Viz manga. Like when there's text in a balloon and then there's text like next to someone's head, like it's kind of similar to that. So mm. when it's warranted, we'll go for it. But I don't want to add like six new fonts for each, you know, stand or something like that. I want to keep it very kind of, kind of tight that way. Mm-hmm. Right. It'll be too distracting if there are too many different styles for the sound Yeah, effects. exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a beef that I have with some fan translations is when they go way overboard on the fonts. Because then it's like, well, I was reading this style. Now I have to switch to this style and this style and this style. Like, it's just, it's too much. It's distracting. It distracts from the voice of the series. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I totally get why they asked the question. Like, the, there's more differentiation in the Japanese. But I think that... Um, I don't know if the, the question asker reads Japanese or not, but I think from an American perspective, Japanese, they don't feel like letters. They're almost shapes, so we don't, can't necessarily discern between them the way we do with, like, Roman text. Mm-hmm. So you can, like, when Dio does his, like, muda, muda, muda cry, like, you can just fill it with those characters, and it looks cool from an American perspective, from a non-Japanese perspective. But if you did that with a bunch of, like, super thick fonts in a word balloon, it would look weird in English, I feel, because like all the shapes are different, like letter forms, different widths. It would be very tricky to pull that off in a way that I think the question asker is asking. Mm. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't really think about it like that before. At the same time, I, I will put out there that as somebody who reads a lot of Viz stuff, I, I really appreciate it when, when, uh, I, I guess when the moment calls for it, I do appreciate the use of different fonts, such as like, you know, like when I read One Piece and, you know, Blackbeard is on the scene, like I, I really enjoy that. I really enjoy that the people at Viz, you know, use a, a very specific font for his, for his dialogue bubbles, you know. Yeah. I like little details like that. Yeah. We <laughs> actually do more of that on Hell's Paradise, my uh, digital serialization. There's probably too much to explain, but there are characters who speak in a different way than other characters because they're more monstrous. Yeah. And some characters switch back and forth between those two. And uh that's in effect in the Japanese edition. Like we're following the Japanese pretty strictly in that case. Mm-hmm. But that's just a matter of we have the regular speaking font, we have the monster font, and that's it. Hmm. So there's less chance of cacophony that way. It's something that appears occasionally. So it feels almost like it's like a oh man, like things are about to get real moment rather than like this is how this character talks all the time. Yeah. So it's always case mm-hmm. by case, I feel. I'm not sure if it would be super appropriate in JoJo's, but it does work in Hell's Paradise. And, you know, we're always looking for ways, you know, to make the books we do better, like to execute better. Another Twitter asker, someone on Twitter, rather, uh, a couple of days ago was like, hey, like, these are really good, but it would be cool if you could fill the balloons more with the stand cries. Yeah, I saw that too. 
Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's a really good point. It's something that we've been watching out for, but I'm definitely going to keep an eye on it in the future because I agree. Like it was one of those things where we had it ship shape. It looks good, but that was an aspect we hadn't thought of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're working on it, but no promises. I think that was mm-hmm. actually, uh, we've had him on the show before. I think that was actually Aiden that tweeted that out. I think I retweeted that a couple days ago. Uh, mm-hmm. So shout out to Aiden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that was a really helpful. Because, you know, you do a thing and it can be good. Everyone, you know, agrees that it's good. But there's always someone else out there who's going to have an opinion. It's like, hey, what if you did this? You're like, oh, yeah, what if we did that? That would be cool. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. I love seeing stuff like that. Even if I can't execute on the request, like, it's good to know for the future. And feedback mm-hmm. is always helpful, I'm sure. Yeah. Most definitely. Though, speaking of questions or comments that we might not be able to execute on, there is a comment from Bill about the Wiz Originals line that I don't know mm-hmm. if you can really get into, like uh, the decision to make the line. So, uh, instead... Like, is there a place you would like to direct people to learn more information about these originals? Yeah, watch our website, viz.com. There should be like an originals tab or link or something like that. That'll be kind of our central place for all of the information for originals. Um, Mm -hmm. One thing we don't want to do is like roll out too much too soon. And then people are like, ah, where are the books? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? We want to make sure we take our time and kind of do it right. Mm -hmm. I can't really speak to the motivations of why we're doing it other than cool books got to get made and somebody's got to do it, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it seems very timely. Um, Gina Gagliano at Random House Graphics is uh, doing a bunch of new books with new creators. Fizz is doing the same. Um, Spike Trotman of Iron Circus Comics is always enlisting new people. Like, there's a wave in comics right now where the industry is in a really good place, like a really, really good place. And Viz is the biggest comics publisher in the U.S. Like, the best-selling... manga at Barnes & Noble last month. Eight of the top ten were My Hero Academia. The other two were Tokyo Ghoul and Smash, the Junji Ito collection. Yeah. Like, that's absurd. Like, that is amazing. So I think that, like, in 2019, like, this year, this, you know, this span of time is a really good time to kind of push the boundaries of what we do in comics. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, honestly, I would like if every company was like, let's do something similar to this. Like, let's push new creators out here into the world. Let's kind of, we know who we sell to now. Let's sell to the next audience. Let's find the next hotness. Yeah. I think I speak for the both of us when I say, like, we're both really looking forward to what comes out of that line. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I'm really excited that we'll have more creators, like, have an opportunity to, like, specifically, like, make manga, like, series that they draw and, like, see as manga. And I think it's really cool that... You know, not just Viz, but we also have Seven Seas licensing uh, Miro Ongchua's Road Queen series. Oh, I didn't hear about that. That's awesome. And yeah, I'm really excited that they picked it up. I support the Kickstarter and have the the book from the Kickstarter, but I'm just so happy that it'll be getting like a wider release and it's being promoted as a Yuri manga, which I think is so cool. Yeah. And there's even stuff like um, Radiant, uh, mm-hmm. which Viz publishes. It's um, It was published in French first. Mm-hmm. Like there's this whole, you know, globalization thing that's going on. And I think that, you know, I don't know the exact origin of the Viz Originals thing. You know, I mean, there's been discussion on the office and stuff, but fundamentally it's that comics are better than they've ever been. Comics industry is in a better place than it's ever been. Now is the time to try new things. Mm-hmm. Like if you looked at 20 years ago, like right before the manga boom really got going, like Marvel was bankrupt. 
and they just made a billion dollars in a weekend with this Avengers movie. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. times change. Like Marvel was like, oh, we've got a little bit of extra capital. Let's try to make some movies. Like, let, let's get this Hollywood money. It's crazy. And yeah. I, I'm so excited to see what the future of comics has in store and like the future of manga now that we're living in a more globalized world and more creators from outside can japan are coming in and like drawing works that they identify as manga i think it's just so exciting yeah and, and man i wonder and as far as manga goes like and as far as the mcu goes will we one day see a shonen jump cinematic universe now that's uh, something that be wild? Be, that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that'd be fun i feel like you could do an, a One Piece cinematic universe all on its own oh, and just follow oh, yeah. different pirate crews. Yeah. And if it had the same tone as Fast and the Furious, it would make a billion dollars each time it came out. Yeah. I, I'm really excited to see how the TV show, the live action TV show is going to turn out. Oh, yeah. I forgot that was coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Will it be a Game of Thrones level success? Uh, we'll see. But I, I'm holding out. I'm, <laughs> I'm excited cool. for it. That would be hmm? buck wild. Yeah. It'd be a lot less grim and depressing. <laughs> oh, yes, hopefully. <laughs> well, we have a final set of questions here from Rico, who has some really great ones. Uh, starting off with, what aspects of the business side of comics manga uh, do you consider overlooked? Hmm. Uh, I think translation, definitely. I think that we don't look like we as a, as the, we the people, <laughs> we don't appreciate translation the way we should or translators. Because mm -hmm. there's so much that, like, translators are, are writers, as far as I'm concerned. They're co-writers. Because they're making words fit into an all-new language based on someone else's. But they have to be good at writing to get to that point, you know? Mm -hmm. That for sure. What else? Definitely demographics. Like, who's buying which manga or comics and why? Because like I said, when I was a kid, like, my experience was everyone read comic books. You know, like, mm -hmm. black, white, Indian... Native American, anything. And as I got older, people were like, ah, oh, well, like these kind of people don't like comics. I'm like, but I'm those kind of people and I love comics. Like, what are you talking yeah. about? So I think the more knowledge we have on that front, both in terms of, um, like market research and also just accepting that, like, everybody reads comics now. Like, it's normal. You know, everybody plays video games. Same thing. I think that would really help us help the culture be way more, way less combative and way more positive. Mm hmm. Most definitely. And they also ask, uh, what piece of advice has helped you in your journey through the industry? Um, this is back from my first day uh, at my video game job in San Francisco. A guy I was working with at the time by the name of y Lindsay Young, who I th think he works for like UNESCO or something. Now he moved right into like nonprofit helping people from video games. He said that time management is the most important skill you'll ever have. Mm -hmm. And it's proved true. I mean, like I've been in the Bay Area 12 years now, you know, like steady employment throughout. And the fun, the one thing shared between every job is you got to hit those deadlines. And if you want to hit your deadlines, you got to plan for what you're going to do and when. Because, you know, if you lollygag, then it's like, ah, oh, well, I guess I'm, you know, working weekends this month. But if like you're really about your business, if you're at your desk to do your job and you get it done and you figure out a way to do that, that's not going to brutalize your body. Like I don't believe in crunch. I think crunch time mm -hmm. is a failure management. And even for me as a person, like if I'm like, ah, well, I got to work three hours extra tonight, like it's because I failed earlier in that week. But if I'm really on the ball, if I'm like, all right, if I can get this script done by three, I can get this lettering done by four and I can get this out the door by five. And if I can hit those marks, I'm good to go. And yeah, yeah time management, 
like even just in my personal life, my professional life, everywhere, it's, it's been crucial. Even mm-hmm. just like scheduling free time, it was something that I had to start doing because uh, I'm a workaholic by nature and I will just stay at the job as much as I can. But I was like, you know what? When I get off work, I need at least two. Like, you know, I have a, um, you know, a sad lamp, like the seasonal affective disorder lamps that shoot like happy rays at your face. Hmm. I've got one of those. It's like a special kind of light that I guess emulates sunlight that helps with bad feelings. Hmm. During the Whoa. winter, I sit and read by it for an hour every night after work just to, it's both like a come down from the job and depression management, I guess. And then also like, I'm just reading books. Like it's pleasant. It's like a, it's a nice break from everything where I'm not playing video games. Uh, sometimes I'm looking at a screen if I have like my iPad or something, but it's just all about making time for me. Even if I have to be like, all right, well, me time's going to be between six and eight thirty. Then I got to cook dinner. Then I got to take a shower. Then I got to do yoga. Then I got to go to bed. You know, that's really cool. I'd never heard of that kind of lamp before, but. Oh, it's great. <laughs> it is uh, probably a literal lifesaver. It doesn't, it doesn't need, you know, like <laughs> therapy or meds, like definitely try that first. But like if you if you're having a little bit of trouble, like having the lamp and it having a ritual associated with the lamp can be really centering. Mm-hmm. I think that really is great advice, no matter what career you're in, just to make sure that you manage your time, that you can do all the things that you want to do and you don't overwork yourself mm-hmm. and you kind of allow yourself some breathing room, some time to enjoy yourself. Yeah, for sure. And like the Viz offices are very lively um, because manga and animation are on the, the same floor. Like we're all in the same giant room, basically. Mm-hmm. So like people come by and hang out, you know, like shoot the breeze for a little bit, go back and do their work. You know, then you'll go and get lunch and hang out there. And it's very friendly. And it's nice that we can be like that without feeling stressed and overworked. Because I've been, you know, I've had jobs where I was like, well, I guess I'm sleeping overnight to get this done on the, you know, pull out mattress we've got at this job for some reason. Oof. Don't work in video games, kids. It's not worth it. <laughs> but, you know, it's nice to be at a place where it's like the expectations are high. I think I'm working on four or five different series plus uh, a couple of trade books, but they're not so high that they're going to run you into the ground and grind you to a nub. People like Urian and uh, Annette Roman, another editor at Viz, like they've been with the company for 20 years. I have books from the 90s from Viz that have like their name in it. You know, uh, Urian was the original editor of Yu Yu Hakusho, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And they're still there and happy. Like they're still cranking out books. I, guess, I think Sleepy Princess is one of uh, Annette's books, as a matter of fact. And I like that there's that kind of old school longevity to this job because so many other jobs, like for us as millennials, is like you get it five years later, you're out because you got laid off or the company shut down. Mm-hmm. Viz is like, no, like when you're in, you're in. And we, we won't break you, you know? That's awesome. I'm glad that it's such a healthy workplace. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> Man, I, I just think back to my college days and all the all-nighters I had to pull. Oh, man. All-nighters are... The one thing I learned from those is they're never as good as you think they're going to be. No. then you have to wake up and fix your work. There's this great comic uh, that Shigeru Mizuki did that was like drawing Tesca and Ishinomori like kind of brag about their all-nighters they pulled. And uh, Mizuki's like, you should really sleep because uh, you live longer if you sleep. Yeah. And the comic ends with <laughs> Mizuki shrugging <laughs> that Tesca and Ishinomori didn't listen to him and now they're dead. <laughs> yeah, like that's totally true. Like I 100% believe that. <laughs> And plus, I think the older I get, the less willing I am to do it. 
Because, you know, like when you're in your 20s, you're like, ah, I got to prove my worth to this job. Now I'm like, they hired me because they want me. Like, I don't know if I need to be that desperate anymore, you know? Yeah, but there's definitely, it's so important to take everything in moderation and just make sure that you leave work at home and that, you know, you do your work at work. (laughs) (laughs) But kind of moving on to uh, the critic editorial side of things. Because the next question is, what resources do you recommend to those starting out being critics and editors? That is a really good question. There are a bunch of comic scripts online. I would read those and compare them to the finished product to kind of see like uh, the intent versus the execution. I would read a bunch of comics that you don't like and figure out what's good about them without like consulting the internet or your friends. Just like read a book and be like, all right, this is not my bag, but whose bag is it and why? Like, what what will people like about this? What do they execute well? I should probably recommend books on comics, but I haven't really read any that stuck with me. But I really Mm -hmm. loved Stephen King's On Writing that I read in middle school. And that's been, like, the most formative book for me as, like, a writer, as a creative person. Mm Because there's just a lot of, like, really plain advice from a guy who was at the top of his game at the time. Um, But more than anything, if you're trying to get started as a critic, you just got to read books. Like everything you read normally, just write a review of it. Even if it's just 200 words, like write down how that made you feel. As an editor, you want to find friends who make comics. Just be like, look, I can help you make your comic. If you need a traffic manager or a story editor or a sounding board, let me know how I can help you. Because editing means different things in comics than it does in uh, proper book publishing. Like as an editor on the image books, I was doing a certain type of thing. But as an editor at Viz, it's completely different. You know, so you can't really just be like, all right, I'm going to go to editor school. Like, what do you want to edit? Like, who do you want to edit for? Like, how are you going to approach it? It's sort of like wrestling an octopus. But, you know, when you get used to it, like, it, it's not that tough at all. Mm-hmm. But yeah, more than anything, you have to read. You know, I said that I don't always read Viz books when they come out, but like, I read those books. So I want to know what my fellow editors are doing. And I want to see mm-hmm. like, what's, what's good coming from the company. And, it's kind of like a passive competition in a way. Like there's no winners or losers, but if I'm like, ah, oh, man, Mike Montessa got a really good line of this Gundam Thunderbolt manga. Like I got to up my game for JoJo's. Like that's a good feeling. Mm-hmm. If you want to do, you have to learn. Yeah, absolutely. And you can't just assume that you're going to get to a point where you can just kind of step into the job. I don't believe in paying dues, but I do believe in education. You have to know what you're doing. That doesn't mean you have to go through pain or get, you know, like $100,000 of student loan debt. Cause, um, like I left college, like I got a job and I was like a salary. I get to sit down when I work. I'm out. I'll see you guys later. <laughs> and that wouldn't work for other people. Like I've, I've been very, very fortunate in my life to have the skills I need at the time when someone's looking for it. And those skills came from, in this case, like my obsessive love of comic books, but not just the love. It's the examination. It's like, treating reviews as an autopsy. Like, what does this do? Why does it do it? How does it do it? And being able to express that to other people. Most definitely. But I think Rico's next question is very similar to Marissa's. So instead, I think our final question after hours of comic stock uh, will be something a little different. Okay. What's your favorite verse? Favorite verse? Like uh, Mm -hmm. music? Yeah. Hmm. I have a lot. One that comes to mind a lot is uh, AZ's verse on Nas's uh, album Illmatic. Uh, I think he, he was like maybe one of only one or two features on the album. But there's a song called uh, Life's a Bee. Life's a B word. I don't know if I can curse on here. But it's just <laughs> a really effective 
an affecting verse about being young and black and living the way that he does. Uh, like it opens, you know, he talks about like visualizing reality and um, just being alive and going around and kind of trying to find a better day, you know, trying to find a better, mar better motto than screw tomorrow. And there's just something about it where I'm like, yeah, this is, this is exactly what I need. Mm -hmm. Actually, that was better tomorrow part is from Nas's verse, but AZ's lyrics on that are really good too. But more recently, I think the one, um, I was just tweeting about this actually. There's an old Joe Budden verse where he says, uh, I've got a side I never showed to you, the side where everyone is disposable. And it's a song kind of about his self-destructive tendencies. And there was a point where I was like, wow, I really relate to this. Like, I totally, I've recognized that aspect in myself. And now when I was younger, it was resonant. The older I get, the more sad it makes me. So I've kind of switched to um, Big Crit's verse on Lupe Fiasco's Tranquilo, which is just all about recognizing who you are, being honest about who you are, and then being reborn as something better, like focusing on peace and understanding more so than conflict and like having things. And that's something kind of where I'm at in my life right now. Like that's really, it's like my shonen, shonen mantra, peace and understanding is what I want more than anything else because that's what everything else, like it just makes life better. Yeah. So yeah, Big Crit, Tranquilo, which for some reason is spelled with two L's instead of one, like it should be in Spanish. Awesome. That's something I'll definitely have to give a listen, because those lyrics sound really great. Yeah. Mm. See, now, I, I thought when they said favorite verse, I thought they meant like like universe as in like Marvel or DC kind oh, of thing. I'm a Marvel kid. Like, I grew up on Spider-Man. There's no, there's no question in my mind that it's the Marvel <laughs> Universe for me. <laughs> Like, DC is cool, I get it, but Spider-Man's from Queens, so he wins. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's really the appeal of the Marvel Universe is that it's set in, like, a world we recognize. Like, the locations are yeah. real locations. Like, it's New York City, and, you know, Spider-Man's life, his neighborhood. Like, you can look at that and, like, see, yeah, I know that neighborhood, or I know, like, I know what this looks like. I I can I've lived this experience. Yeah, like Gotham City is cool. I get it, but there's no airships in Georgia. We don't have like yeah. blimps and stuff like that. <laughs> like we need some woods and you know like pickup trucks. That'll make it much more believable for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, if he meant poetry verse, I love after apple picking. Mm. That's um, was it Frost? I think it was John Frost. But it's a it's a huge favorite of mine. There's just something about the language and the the way it's laid out and just kind of the themes. Robert Frost, not John Frost. Good grief. John Ooh, Keats was Robert what I was Frost. thinking of. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's great. I first discovered it in high school. And actually the first time I got to do something like leading a panel was teaching a class on this poem to a group of uh juniors when I was a senior. And mm. it was just a good time. That's great. I have a collection of Robert Frost poems. I should look if that's in there. Yeah, it's, it's got to be. It's one of his greats. Um, I, I don't really have a head for poetry necessarily, but I love Frost, Keats, Saul Williams, who is much more, you know, much more modern. And that might be it. I had a soft spot for Ezra Pound until I realized how fascist he was. I don't really have a head for poetry either, but I've always been a Shel Silverstein kind of guy. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. those are really good. I haven't dug super deep, but I, they were, you know, they were in the atmosphere when I was a kid, you know? Mm-hmm. He's an amazing author photo. Like, for a guy who is so kid-friendly, uh, his photo looks like some kind of manga villain. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, what I think is great about Rika's Final Quest is because we could interpret it in so many different ways and kind of reveal, like, different experiences we could latch onto it or, like, different influences, things we love. Yeah. Like, just in the, the ways we can interpret the word verse. And I kind of want to pose this final question to you, David, is that, you know, you are so well-versed in so many different uh, forms of art. You Like, you have a passion for music and poetry and comics. And I just want to ask, like, ha- has your experience, your love of different art forms, like, does this just enhance, like, your appreciation for different mediums? Like, can you... You take your love of music and of language and you can put that in to your like comics reading experiences. Like yeah. just having different experiences. Like how does that like really enhance your worldview? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, I've been saying for a long time that in terms of being a writer, uh, which you know, like I edit for a living, but I feel like in my head, I think of myself as a writer. All my favorite writers, everyone I learned from are rap artists. Because they, they have such like a density of content in their verses. Like a rap verse is 16 lines long. That's like nothing. That's like 30, 45 seconds. They can get across so many complex ideas using incredibly, I don't want to say lyrical language, but like that might be the only word for it. Like it's not realistic, but it evokes realism through its unrealism. Like the, um, the AZ verse that I was talking about. Visualizing the realism of life and actuality, F who's the baddest, uh, a person's status depends on salary. And it's just like, here's the truth of life. It doesn't matter how bad or tough or whatever you think you are. If you don't have money, no one's going to care. And that doesn't mean that it's fair or right, but it is what it is. And I really appreciate that kind of economy of language. And I try to bring that into my writing. I really try to... When I was younger, it would be, you know, like quoting rap lyrics in an essay, but now it's almost more like finding a way to state a point that kind of talks around the point, kind of talks someone into the point instead of just being like, here's what I'm talking about. It's like, no, I want to hold your hand and I want you to come with me on this journey. So I think comics are my favorite art form, but music involves everything that I do. And Mm -hmm. I really appreciated the last few years of anime that, what was it? Devilman Crybaby, Megalobox, and... I think Blood Blockade Battlefront, uh, mm-hmm. they open with rap songs or like they feature rap music heavily, either as a recap yeah. or like a surprise in the middle of an episode. Uh, the one in Megalobox, I was laughing so hard I had to like <laughs> pause the episode because I was starting to cry. Like I was just so, I was like this, like I love this anime, now I love it more. So I love when my, when my interests mix like that, when kind of the, the mediums blend. Music and comic books is very, very hard to do, but even... Tokyo Pop used to publish Tokyo Tribes, which was basically like a, a hip hop comic or hip hop manga set in Japan about Japanese people listening to like rap and soul music and then also doing you know, like gangster stuff. And it was really relatable because in one scene, a character has an Anthony Hamilton poster on his wall. He's like looking for the new Anthony Hamilton CD. And I love Anthony Hamilton. So it's like, bam, like instant resonance. And I think that ties back to the diversity point. Because so many things now are universal that things like that will show up in a Japanese book. Even if, you know, the creator's never been to America, he likes this singer from South Carolina or North mm-hmm. Carolina, one of the two. I, forget, I always forget which. Like, that's just really cool. It's yeah. always nice when all your interests kind of dovetail in interesting ways. Yeah, that just gives such a... I love that different art 
can intersect and that artists are inspired by other forms of art. And mm -hmm. I, I just love that cycle of influences. Yeah, the best way to find new art is to find someone that you like and then look at what they're reading or listening to. Like read liner notes for albums in the 90s. That was like the best way for me to find new people because they'd mm -hmm. always be like, ah, like shout out to so-and-so who does blah, blah, blah. I'm like, ah, I should check this out. And then I love that too. You know, it just kind of, it's like tipping over dominoes. That's great advice to take to heart and like to kind of discover new pieces of art to get into and then just expand your horizons and learn. Mm -hmm. And I want to thank you for coming on today, David, because I think I've learned so much from talking to you and like learning about your experiences. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Thank you. I I'm glad you came on. I had so much fun and yeah, we'd love to have you on again to just talk about more of the things you love. Yeah, anytime. Your questions are great, so this was a pleasure. Yeah, if there's ever Thank any, you. like, manga or anything in particular you want to, like, talk about, just pit us up. Okay. Or we'll hit you up. But I think until the next time, uh, let's just let the good folks know, like, where they can find you, where they can check out your stuff and books you work on. Uh, I know that you're going to be at a few cons, like, uh, in the coming future, and you actually have a uh, short story collection. Yeah, so I have, um, in, in between in all my copious free time, I write short fiction for fun. And I'm, de I'm debuting a short story collection called Darker Than Blue, Volume 1, which are all, there's eight stories set in the city that I invented. It's kind of a merger of all my favorite cities. Um, and it's a mix of like crime fiction. There's like family drama. There's some grief. And the last story in the book is about, uh, Sun Wukong, the Chinese mythological figure. Who I love, like I love Journey to the West, and it's almost like fanfic for that guy. Hmm. But um, it's sixty-two pages. I'm gonna have an ebook. I'll have a print copy. The ebook's gonna be three bucks. But if you pre-order it from Gumroad.com/slash/DavidBrothers, it's just two bucks. And putting that out, I'm working on JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Volume One of Diamond Is Unbreakable comes out the second week of May. So probably by the time you hear this episode, it'll be out. Record of Grand Crest War, I work on. We Never Learn, coming out. Read Hell's Paradise on viz.com. It's super good. It's uh, mm -hmm. kind of like Blade of the Immortal meets Annihilation. Yes. So if you like those two things, like this is the one. This is it. Uh, I've got a Transformers art book coming out, but we'll have more info on that kind of as the year goes on. It's going to be a huge deluxe thing. Uh, Hasbro basically opened their vaults to us and we're like, here's a bunch of images. We we're like, all right, we're going to make it oh rain. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, I am looking forward to that. Yeah. Going to be so much history there. But yeah, you can find me. Um, so my story is at gumroad.com slash davidbrothers. I am davidbrothers.com is the website. It's basically just a super simple text page where it's like, here's what I do. Here's what I've done. Here's where you can find me. And I'm on Twitter at Hermanos. Awesome. And uh, any, do you have any final message you'd like to say to our, our audience before signing off? Uh, comics are the best. And it doesn't matter who makes them or where they come from. Find the ones you love and it will definitely make your life better. Or turn you Words into a ridiculous obsessive like me. <laughs> Words to live by. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Hey y'all, I'm Ramayasha here. I hope you all enjoyed the David Brothers interview. And before we wrap up the show, I'm coming in from the future, or rather, the present, as in the day that this episode will be released to the public, to discuss this week's 
community shoutouts, and I got a couple for you guys. First off, we've got some new stuff from our good friend Wensley Dale Cheddar, who recently made an intro animation for Weekly Manga Recap, which was hosted by our previous guest on the show, Chris Larios, who you might remember from the Dragon Ball Super episode, as well as Nick Freeman, who, you know, you may remember his YouTube channel rivaling the time back in the day, but they're both mainly known for WMR now. They've been going with that show for over eight years strong now it's my favorite podcast every week they recap manga mainly the shonen jump stuff it's a lot of fun and wednesday dale made an awesome intro animation that has so many loving cameos and references to wmr history and in jokes in the series and highlights all their Regular guests like Annalisa, Chrisman, and Jeffrey Work, who are also guests on this show. And I was just in love with this intro animation as a huge fan of WMR myself, so I really want to give that a shout out. But Wesley Dale's also been making some great analysis videos on some recently cancelled jump series. His most recent one being on Neolation, taking a look back at what worked about it, what didn't work about it how we felt about the series overall. It was a good video and a great retrospective on that short-lived but still highly entertaining series. So definitely check out Wensleydale's stuff. He's doing some great work. But you know who's also been doing great work? As always, Anime Feminist. Still my favorite anime blog site. Still putting out the best editorials in the anime blogosphere. And recently, they've made a great recommendations list for feminist-friendly anime for people to check out. They've got three different pages for three different categories. They've got a general category, which is just for, you know, basically anyone who is interested in anime that focuses on feminist themes. They've got a page for queer representation, you know, for people who are interested in anime explicitly about queer characters and issues that involve queer people and the struggles that they go through and they have a page for general family-friendly feminist favorites you know shows you can show to kids i was very happy to see that d put pokemon in the family-friendly list that got a kick out of me and i think it is very much well deserved but they also got some other great suggestions in there like little witch academia car Hector sakura sailor moon in general between all three of these lists there are 30 shows and films that you can check out that are, you know, really feminist-friendly and genuinely engage in feminist ideas and topics, you know, that you can have conversations about, that you can think about and enjoy. So I highly recommend these lists. They're a great resource. And once again, Anime Feminists, putting out the best work out there in the blogosphere, you gotta go read them if you aren't already. And then finally, as always, speaking of places where... You should visit, if you're not, to get, you know, great editorials, news updates, content and stuff, anime news network. But this time in particular, there's this great piece by Zach Burstree, you know, head managing editor over at Anime News Network, who, in commemoration of Evangelion hitting Netflix, has written up a great post on the meme 
get in the robot Shinji and why it is such a disservice and shows such a fundamental misunderstanding about what Evangelion is about and most importantly how it's such an unempathetic unsympathetic understanding of Shinji as a character and what he is struggling with in terms of depression and dealing with an abusive father and being so desperate to earn his validation and approval that he will do things that he hates and hurts him and yeah basically the point of the piece is that you know get in the robot Shinji is like a phrase that completely ignore Shinji's struggle and sides with Gendo, sides with Shinji's abuser, and perpetuates the violence and pain shown at him, saying that he deserves it for being, you know, not complicit or hesitating to, you know, do something that is obviously wrong, obviously hurting him. Which was a great point to make. Finally, a really great articulation of this idea. And I thought it was a piece that was truly from the heart. It really shows and goes into detail about how the series does not ever support this idea that Shinji should get in that robot. Like the entire point of the series is Shinji needs to learn to take care of himself and to love himself, achieve self-actualization in order to get out of his depression and not worry about seeking the approvals of others so much, so much as learning to love himself. And I think that was just such a prescient point to make, an important point to make, now that so much Evangelion discourse is going to go around, and I'm sure people are going to be misunderstanding the series left and right, and especially because it deals with such powerful, personal, emotional subject matter like depression, like dealing with abusive, manipulative people in your life. I think it's a very important point to make, and Zach articulated very well. So all three of the things I mentioned, I highly recommend them. Links in the description. Check them out. And that has been this week's Community Shoutout, and now I'm going to sag us in to the wrap Cause he ain't really living life. Let's see down the road of dice. Put it all on the line for a couple dollars in a bad bitch. They only think about him if he calls. Is it really worth the time of the effort? Chasing wood grain in the leather, putting pressure on the pedal. Otherwise, the devil, hoping he falls. Freedom to his nonsense, motherfucker, conscious. You don't need a hand out, they gon' bring the bands out. Toppers make them stand out. Good law, good law. But you don't wanna be another nigga or take the figures that never really add up. White folk past your face, died in the grass, cause they went and called the law. Cause your hoodie black, yeah, they think you selling crack. Maybe, maybe so, you don't give a fuck in the rut, nigga. Tiddles in the street, get your stuck, nigga. What, nigga? Roll on the folk, let it go on the folk, but he wouldn't have a shoot one. Another child didn't go. It's so low, but we all. I heard different, it's never too late to listen and be reborn. Young nigga, young nigga, young nigga, go be reborn. Peace and understanding of what you should be on. Thank you once again to David for coming on the show and spending over three hours with us just talking comics. It was a really awesome time, and I can't wait to have him on the show again. And we mentioned it on the show, but definitely go check out his stuff, uh, the worst series he's working on for Viz, like JoJo's and We Never Learned, but also his personal blog, Sport Letter, and I Am David Brothers. Like, there are some incredible essays and podcasts on there that are really, really great reads and listens that I highly recommend. 
And also check out his short story collection, which you can get off Gumroad, Darker Than Blue. It's a really great short story collection, and uh, it's only $2 to read, so definitely pick that up as well and support his mm-hmm. work. Yeah, that was that was a really fun, lengthy, but fun discussion. And uh, now I think we should just start wrapping up here. Uh, Lum, where can everybody find you? You can find me at Lum Rama Yasha on Twitter and places like Anilist and Animation Revelation, wherever there is a Lum Rama Yasha, that's where you can find me. And you can also find more of my work, my pieces on manga and anime movies on all-comedy.com. You can also find the Lum Squad podcast, the monthly podcast I do with my good friend AC Anurseyatsura on there. And if you want to support my art and writing and all my other projects, you can support me by donating a tip to me on Kofi slash Lamariyasha or on my personal Patreon page, Patreon slash Lamariyasha. And any donations sent my way, it'll be greatly appreciated and will definitely be put back into my art to just help me create more stuff and share it with you all you fine people. Yeah, definitely go support Lum's stuff. But as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323, as well as all the other podcasts I do, such as Life Lessons, the Gintama Manga Cast. If you're a fan of Gintama, go check that out. Uh, we are on a bit of a hiatus, unfortunately, at the moment, but uh, we still have a huge backlog of episodes that you can listen to over at GintaLifeLessons.wordpress.com, or you should go listen to One Podcast Prevails at OnePodcastPrevails.com. It's a show that I record with my friend Doctor over at the Ask Backwards Anime Podcast about Detective Conan, Case Closed, whatever people call it. And so, yeah, I really enjoy recording that show. I love Conan, and I love talking about it. Uh, Again, please go listen to that at OnePodcastPrevails.com. But as for all comic in the podcast specifically, you want to go find all of our podcasts at all-comic.com. That's where we post every episode first, unless you are a patron. If you are subscribed to the $2 tier, of course, you will get access to certain podcasts even earlier uh, than the release dates. Uh, So, you know, if you want to listen to some of our stuff early, uh, it's only $2 to do so over at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. But yeah, again, all of our podcasts are at alt-comic.com as well. You can also follow us on facebook.com slash alt.comic or on twitter.com slash alt-comic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks in particular, you want to follow us on Twitter at Manga underscore Mavericks or on Tumblr at MangaMavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. You also want to subscribe to us on YouTube at YouTube.com slash Manga Mavericks where we post uh, different excerpts of the podcast such as different news pieces we cover, all of our different uh, discussions, retrospectives, interviews, and whatnot. Even some exclusive content every once in a while. So again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Email us anything at uh, manga mavericks at gmail.com. We'll read it on the show, you know. Uh, what did you think about our interview with David Brothers? You know, what do you think about all the manga he works on? What are some manga you're reading or manga you want us to cover on the show? What do you think of the podcast? Just anything about manga in the podcast, you know, in general. Email us at manga mavericks at gmail.com. And again, we will read it on the show. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever it's called. You know, that really helps the visibility of our show and just just really helps us grow in general. So please do that if you have the time. You know, we'd really appreciate it. But I think, yeah, that's going to be about it for the show. 
This has been episode 91 of the Manga Mavericks podcast, and we will see you guys next time for episode 92. Bye, guys. Sayonara.